This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Back in the saddle after a delightful three-day weekend. Wonderful to be back. Thank you for listening. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I hope you had a nice Labor Day, whether you are a member of a labor union or not. We'll talk a little bit about the contributions of the American labor movement throughout the rest of the show, periodically. Got a great show for you. Malachi McCourt will join me in our second hour. And then coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Brian Tui who is a disgruntled sports fan and a skeptic and a cynic. And this is going to be one of the most explosive conspiracy interviews you've ever heard. Brian Tuohy is essentially of the belief that professional sports is fixed. I'm not going to say anything more, but tune in in about 15 minutes. But one quick note on the history of Labor Day. You know, the rest of the world, they celebrate the contributions of American workers, not American workers, but workers, but they do it on a different day. They do it on International Workers' Day, May Day, May 1st. Now, it's interesting. The Washington Post had a very interesting column uh, by uh, Jillian Brockell about why we in the United States celebrate Labor Day while the rest of the country, rest of the world rather, celebrates May Day, International Workers' Day. And it really all comes down to politics. You see, both holidays, International Workers' Day or May Day and Labor Day, both started here in the United States of America. Uh, We don't know exactly when, but probably in the 1880s thereabouts. There's different people that say that uh, different people deserve credit for it. Now, it was the administration of Grover Cleveland, who was in his second non-consecutive term, And he was thinking about, at the time, in 1894, running for a third term. And there was already a holiday on the 1st of May with ancient origins. But national labor organizers, they didn't have that in mind in 1884 when they set May 1st, 1886, as a deadline for businesses to grant their workers an eight-hour workday. As the day approached, unions across the country prepared for a general strike that day. Listen to this. That day, May 1st, 1886, somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 workers went on strike around the country. In Chicago, the strikers tended to be more radical socialists and anarchists, and their protests continued long after the others went home. On May 3rd in Chicago, police shot into a crowd of strikers, killing two of them. People were, as you might imagine, think about this happening today, Outraged. Outraged. And there was a riot in Haymarket Square. In the ensuing riot, 12 people were killed. Listen to this. 
Eight of them were police officers. Did you have any idea? I got to say, I knew that there was a rock, a riot in Haymarket Square. I had no idea that 12 people were killed and that eight of them were police officers until I started researching this. So the next year, unions held a commemoration of the Haymarket events on May 1st. And by 1889, the Second International, which was a worldwide conference of socialists, they declared May 1st International Workers' Day, Day, although everyone pretty much just calls it May Day. So both May Day and Labor Day were honored in the United States by various labor groups for years, though the former, May Day, had a reputation for being more political, more radical, and less merry than the latter. For that reason, Labor Day was always a little more popular with with politicians and with lawmakers. And by 1894, more than 20 states had made it a state holiday. So Grover Cleveland was president. He was thinking about running for a third term. And making Labor Day a federal holiday was not high on the list of priorities for Grover Cleveland. He was focused on the recession. And there was the headache of a bitter, long strike centered in Chicago, the Pullman strike, that was threatening the nation's economy, which was already struggling. So as Cleveland prepared to clamp down on the strikers in Chicago, he pushed a Labor Day bill through Congress and signed it on June 28th. Now, most historians agree that this Labor Day signing was largely an attempt to concede something to the labor movement while blunting the power of the more radical May Day crowd. Isn't that interesting? That essentially President Cleveland made Labor Day a holiday just so that he could throw the labor people a bone while clamping down on the May Day strikers. So a few days later, uh, Grover Cleveland ordered federal troops to Chicago as these strikers grew violent. And on July 17th, National Guard troops, people like uh, Michael in New Jersey, National Guard troops fired into the crowd killing as many as 30 people. And when the first federally recognized Labor Day rolled around that September, workers and labor unions were not really assuaged because only federal workers got the day off. Private sector workers didn't get it. Isn't that interesting? So I thought it might be interesting to have a look at the state of the American workforce and the American labor movement Today, And if you have anything you want to add, you can do so, 800-848-9222. An issue that I have been concerned about, I've talked about it before, and today seems as appropriate a time as any to talk about it, is the coming automation of the American workforce. There was a very interesting um, opinion piece, an, an editorial in the Philadelphia Inquirer headline, It's past time to prepare for a future where the workforce has as many robots as people. There's no better time than Labor Day to ask Washington to come up with a more definitive plan to assist employees who are in jeopardy of becoming obsolete. Think about it. How many jobs in your life today used to be done by people and are now done by machines? You know, um, there used to be something called a cleaning lady that would come to your house and you'd pay that person 
and they would vacuum and sweep up and clean up. I know some people still do that. You know what we have in our house? We have a robot that has replaced the cleaning uh, the cleaning lady. It's called a Roomba. It is a robot vacuum cleaner that works all the time, scaring the cat, fascinating Carmine, and it just goes all over the place vacuuming like a robot. It is a robot. Uh, a lot of people may remember the days when you used to go to a car wash, and that car wash was basically two or three people that would wash your car, throw some soap on it, hose it down, and then dry it. Well, you go to most car washes these days, and that car wash is all automated. There's a scene in the film I, Robot, where a robot-hating police officer, played by Will Smith, this was before everyone hated Will Smith, people still liked him at the time, He's questioning the manufacturer of a robot that's suspected of murdering a human. The conversation gets testy, and the robot maker, played by Bruce Greenwood, looks Smith in the eye and says, I suppose your father lost his job to a robot. I don't know. Maybe you would have simply banned the Internet to keep libraries open. It's a great line, and it's an interesting film, and it's a film that portends many things that have happened after. Is this a case of art imitating life? Yes. Automation, artificial intelligence, and robots are costing people their jobs. But no, none are suspected of committing homicide as a result. And the last time we looked around, none of them were known to be organizing an AI insurrection. I think that's like a 10-year-from-now problem. What's real is that this country is not doing enough to prepare for a future where millions of Americans with outdated skills won't be able to compete for jobs when a less expensive automated alternative is available to their employers. And there's no better time than Labor Day to ask our leaders, what are we doing about it? We need to come up with a definitive plan to assist employees who are in in danger of becoming obsolete. Now, I recognize economies change, technologies change, Technologies change economies, which then change technologies. And there's a reason uh, there are not a lot of people working as telegraph operators these days. Or my Uncle Jimmy was uh, was a, an elevator operator. I, re- I recognize there's not as much of a need for elevator operators because of the changing technologies. But I think with such a massive amount of the workforce about to be put out of job, put out of their jobs because of robots... This is an area of life and the economy which we are totally unprepared for. And I don't think we have a handle on this at all. What do you think? 800-848-9222. One of the guys that I do think has a firm grasp on this is Andrew Yang, who I've always been an admirer of. But I think on this issue, the question of animation and automation taking the jobs of humans, he has been very prophetic on this issue. And this is an interview that he did really when nobody knew who he was. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast about three years ago, right as he was running for president, talking about the automated workforce. I spent the last seven years running an organization that I had started called Venture for America. And we helped create about 3,000 jobs in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans, other cities around the country. And I saw that we're pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And that for every 5, 10, 50 jobs that my entrepreneurs are going to create, we're going to lose 5, 10, 50,000 jobs. 
is not something that people intuitively suspect could be a real issue either. It's it's one of the, one, the ones where you kind of have to like go shake people like, hey, look at this. This is coming. There's a cliff. We're going towards this cliff. It's it's darker still in that. So uh, when I was digging into the numbers, I found that it's not this cliff that we're heading towards. It's actually more of a curve that we're on. Uh, what I've been telling people is that we're in the third inning now where one of the main reasons why Donald Trump won in 2016 is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs that were based in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states he needed to win in the center of the country. And a lot of that was just manufacturing work. And if you go to a factory, you'll see it's just giant robot arms as far as the eye can see. So mm. it's not just that you have artificial intelligence on the horizon. It's that we've been eating away at the most common jobs in the U.S. economy uh, for almost 20 years now. And it's just now hitting a point where it's pushing more and more unskilled men in particular out of the workforce. Labor Day is an excellent occasion to confront the automation of the workforce, which is continuing to proceed. Remote work is going to make this easier, not harder. There needs to be a new approach. What kind of approach would you like to see? 800-848-9222. Because I'm not prepared to shrug my shoulders and say, oh, tough. You're, uh, you know, a computer done took your place like the old Dusty Rhodes speech. Uh, Tough. Well, you're out of luck. No, I think we need to do something about this, and I think we need a strategic plan as a country in terms of how to confront this and how to deal with this, because this is a big problem, and we're seeing it all over the place. We are seeing this time and again. It happened to this year to workers at a Zenni optical facility near San Francisco when the company replaced them with vision-equipped robots able to identify eyeglasses of a particular shape and color, check their ID numbers, and correct, correctly place each item in its appropriately labeled bag. That kind of work is drudgery for most people, but not for robots that can see and, once purchased, require no salary and no benefits. I was at the grocery store the other day, and I think there were two cashiers working on the checkout line in the grocery store. You know what the rest was? Robots was automated self-checkout. The World Economic Forum predicts that by 2025, automation will have created at least 12 million more jobs than it replaces. But that's not a seamless process. While automation may be a net positive eventually, a lot of people without the skills needed to manufacture, maintain, and monitor robots or AI programs are going to be unemployed, at least temporarily where they're going to wind up with a job that pays far less than what their families need to survive. And the coronavirus pandemic accelerated this. More customer call centers decided it was less trouble and cheaper to purchase chatbot programs from Watson Assistant or Live Person than continuing to employ humans. Security guard robots were purchased from Nightscope to monitor malls and stadiums. And while DoorDash shut down Chowbotics after buying it last year, some Sally robots are still chopping salads for hospital and university dining halls. This is not the first time that the world's labor force has had to adjust to technological advancements. More than 200 years ago, the Luddites, so named after a fictional Robin Hood-like hero, burned down factories in Britain 
where mechanized looms and knitting frames replaced weavers and other textile workers. Automobiles, telephones, and computers, they also put a lot of people out of work while creating new employment opportunity. The issue is not whether AI or robots or anything else in development is good or bad. It's how we manage their impact on society. And that is lacking. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jeff is on Long Island. Hello there, Jeff. Hey, what's going on, buddy? Uh, you tell Listen, me. Uh, I, I, work in, uh, I work in a supermarket. And just, just like you were saying, they have all the checkout lanes. They have three cashiers on the checkout, checkout lanes. Self-checkout, they have one person. Eight, re- eight people can check out at one time. One person is washing them. So they took eight jobs away from eight people. That's yeah, just, so what do we do What do we do about it, Jeff? I, actually, a lot of customers will wait online to talk to a person, then go on a self-checkout. Yeah, and and I talk to I talk to some of these people, and they say, "I won't go on a self checkout because I know I'm taking a job away." Yeah, well, that's my my view. I mean, I uh, I try to always patronize the human over the robot. Absolutely, and 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 I and I and I, and I shake their hands. I said, "Thank you very much." And now, Stop and Shop has robots going around and doing all the ordering. They have to have a robot going around and scanning all the stuff, which a human used to do to make to, to do all the ordering, you know, to you know, stuff that we need on the shelves. They have robots going down now and doing all the ordering, scanning all the holes, scanning all the stuff. But that's another person that doesn't have a job anymore. Yeah, it's so true, Jeff, and I find it very concerning. Thanks for the call. Uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer writes, and I agree with this. America needs to respond as it did in 1957 after the Soviet Union launched its Sputnik satellite. It has to realize the future has already begun. Elementary and high school students must place a lot more emphasis on communication and analytical skills that prepare students for technology's ascension. Workers whose jobs are disappearing have to be trained for new ones. And a sturdier safety net must be available for those who become Jobless. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is one of the many things about the workplace era in which we're living in in 2022 Labor Day that is different than five years ago or 10 years ago. The Despite inflation and economic slowdown, the labor market remains tight. Jobs are growing and workers are still quitting. Employers kept adding jobs all summer particularly in food and retail. Layoffs have been largely confined to pockets of the economy, tech sector, cryptocurrency, home buying, and select companies like Bed Bath & Beyond. Most employees would rather, at least at this point, this might not be true come next year, most employers would rather hold on to workers. Too many of them have grappled with short staffing. More than four people quit their jobs each month for the past year. That's the highest in decades. And it's not just about the money. It's about worker well-being. I don't know if you saw um, 
and you know, look, we'll we'll chronicle this throughout the program. But I don't know if you saw the uh, story about how employers are desperate to get their employees back to work, and you know what they're doing? They're offering snacks. Now we've been uh, very lucky to uh, you know have a very nice selection of snacks here. I just had some trail mix, but a lot of this is the only radio station I've ever worked at where they actually have complimentary snacks. You, if you're, you're lucky if once in a while there's uh, free coffee at most radio stations. But apparently the employers are very fed up with the fact that their employees don't want to come back to work. And they're trying to figure out a way to get them back to work. So food is getting much more expensive. Not in Russia, by the way, but here in the United States. It's getting much more expensive in home and in restaurants, but not at work, where employers are giving it away to lure workers back, or at least to try to lure workers back. Axios had an interesting piece on this. 51% of companies are offering free snacks and beverages in 2022. 51%. You know what that was three years ago? 31%. We've gone from, in just three years... 31% of companies offering free snacks to 51%. That's the nice thing about a robot. You don't have to feed them. Overall, food prices were up 10.9% in July. So uh, compared with a year earlier, some employers are investing in new cafeterias where they subsidize food or give it away. Bloomberg is big with that. Both Bloomberg LLP and when Bloomberg was mayor of New York City, they were big into the snacks. And... um, At the gleaming new 21-story headquarters of Marriott International in Maryland, there's a sprawling new cafeteria that is designed for one reason, to draw people back into the office. Workers can grab a free brownie ice cream sandwich or an orange freeze. Airstream CEO Robert Wheeler said it on an investor call in June that a full-service cafeteria is a centerpiece of their new headquarters, and it's designed to attract and retain employees. So I think it's interesting. You're sort of seeing two things going on. You're seeing people not want to come back to work and engage in quiet quitting, which we've covered, or actual quitting. You're seeing employers really want them back to work, want wanting them to come back to work, but the technology is moving in a direction where a lot of these people are going to be replaced by robots. How many years will it be before the Labor Day parade is Rosie the maid from the Jetsons and Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet marching down the street? I wonder. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We're going to talk whether or not sports is fixed with Brian Tuohy in just a moment. But let me run through some of these, uh, some of your suggestions, some of your thoughts. 800-848-9222. Ah! is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hello there. How are you? Great. Thank you. So, I'm listening to you talk about employer, employer, employee. So, employee, employee, employee. Let's take it from the employer's point of view. Now, me, myself, I'm all for robots because that's how I claw back. When the government says, oh, we're going to raise your corporate tax, what do I do? I say, okay. When an employee says, I'm taking two weeks off for maternity leave, what do I do? I sit there and I say, okay, 
that we're in now. When you give an inch, they take a mile. I've been giving away things from my bakery for years. And that what I noticed is I gave an inch, they took a mile. So now I don't give an inch anymore. And I don't really care if they come back to work like Ronald Reagan did with the uh, – Air traffic controllers, yeah. Uh, You know, Al, I think you have exactly hit the nail on the head in term in terms of why so many employers are embracing robots they don't not only do they not have to deal with things like maternity leave you don't have to deal with things like workplace drama or anything like that now uh, and thanks for the call out but the thing is as a country is that what we want now it sounds like on the one hand what else suggesting is that maybe employers shouldn't be saddled with so many onerous restrictions and he doesn't want to deal with people faking sick days and stuff like that. I get that. But eventually, if the entire workforce is replaced or not the entire workforce, but 40 percent of the workforce is replaced by machines, where does that leave the country? Where does that leave the tax base? Where does that leave the next generation of Americans? I think it leaves us in a future very similar to the one Will Smith was in in iRobot. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Maxine is in Manhattan. Hello, Maxine. Hi, Frank. How are you? Great. Thanks. Great. So this is a couple of things I'm thinking about. First of all, I think that children, young people, starting from kindergarten, even nursery school, through 12th grade and then up through uh, college, be prepared for this world and fields that are specifically targeted towards these needs so that they are not um, placed out of the workforce. Also, don't you wonder, for instance, you mentioned the World Economic Forum, other organizations as well, They knew that this was coming for decades. Why hasn't there been better preparation? I I think that's a great question, uh, Maxine. I think it's one that too few leaders bring up. Andrew Yang, to his credit, brought it up when he ran for president and for mayor. That is not something we hear brought up uh, by and large, which is why I'm mentioning it. Brian Toohey joining us in just a moment. Let me squeeze in one more call here. Uh, Paul is in Westwood. Hello, Paul. How you doing, Frank? Great. I wanted to tell you, I just had to purchase an Easy Pass. After all these years being a union worker, I had to buy an Easy Pass because this told us it took all them jobs away. Now, all those jobs that they took away, where's that money going? Yeah, I, they're, I mean, they're, I, I think amazing. it's just amazing. Those robes should be paved in gold. Those bridges should be made. <laughs> Right. Yeah. What is there? Where is all that? Just think of how many trucks go over to George Washington Bridge a day. That's a hundred bucks a pop. Uh, Paul, uh, whether it's the MTA or uh, the Port Authority, you're going to get no argument from me that uh, that says that they're spending this money well. That's coming in in the form of tolls. And uh, you're right. A toll booth clerk used to be a, a great job that you could raise a family on with benefits. Now that there's not much of a need for toll booth clerks, where's the money going? And uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Thank you, Paul. And I think that's the crux of the argument. All right. Sports. Some of you might have bet on sports betting is legal in more and more jurisdictions. They're even talking about making betting on elections legal in certain places. But what if you were to learn that the sporting event 
that you bet on, the baseball game, the football game, the hockey game, basketball game, what if you learned that it was fixed? How would you react? Well, what if you learned they were all fixed? That's part of what I'm going to cover with Brian Tui. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. On this program, we have sought to cover just about every widely known conspiracy theory in the world. Too many to list. Elvis still alive? We've covered it. Uh, Bigfoot? We've covered it. Loch Ness Monster? Aliens? JFK assassination? RFK assassination? Martin Luther King assassination? Uh, September 11th? We have covered every conspiracy theory in the world, QAnon, you name it. But I have a feeling this is going to be one of the most controversial conspiracy discussions we've ever had. Brian Tuohy is recognized as the leading authority on the subject of sports fixing. He's the author of The Fix Is In, The Showbiz Manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and and NASCAR, and Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing, and the FBI. He's been published all over the place. He's one of the most sought-after experts on this subject, and I'm thrilled that he's agreed to uh, wake up early or stay up late uh, with us this morning. Brian, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me on, Frank. I appreciate it. Brian, I think a lot of people recognize that there are moments when a player or players might take money to throw a game. Obviously, the eight-men-out scandal of the 1919 World Series got a great deal of attention. And especially prior to that scandal, there was always a lot of talk that a lot of the old-school baseball players would take money to throw games uh, so that gamblers could, could win money. I think most people these days sort of view fixed games, whether it's the overt outcome or point shaving, as relatively rare. You don't seem to think that it is rare, though. No, not at all. I mean, I think if you look outside the United States, which a lot of Americans tend not to do, but you look outside the United States and game fixing for gambling purposes is rampant. It's in soccer, it's in tennis, it's in rugby, it's in cricket, it's in sports all over the globe. There's investigations all over the globe. There's been arrests and convictions all over the globe. And it's amazing. It's one crime that apparently takes place everywhere in the world except the United States, if we're to believe 
the major sports leagues, that is. So what do you think and what has your research shown is going on in the major sports leagues in the United States? Well, I approach game fixing from two angles, one from the gambling angle and one from the entertainment angle. And on the gambling angle, you know, I obtained through the Freedom of Information Act over 400 files from the FBI about their investigations into game fixing in college sports and in professional sports. And the FBI had amazing information that showed that literally Hall of Fame players in the NFL and NBA bet on games in which they played, but yet nobody really ever investigated it. Those players never got kicked out of the Hall of Fame. And really, basically, the media and the sports league just ignored it and act like it doesn't even exist. Now, years ago, maybe 40, 45, 50 years ago, I could see us having this conversation about the world of professional wrestling, where now I think everybody, by and large, knows that the outcomes of professional wrestling matches are predetermined. If you were to suggest that for a baseball game, a football game, or a boxing match, for instance, I think people would would say that you're crazy. And I'm sure you've heard a lot of these oh, people yeah. saying that you're crazy. From is the level of fixing in sports by the leagues and or at least the leagues turning a blind eye to it is it really on par with what might go on in the WWE or the world of professional wrestling well here's the thing there is no legal difference between professional wrestling and the NFL and the NBA they're all actually sports entertainment so if a league like the NFL decided it wanted to manipulate one of its own games or outright fix its own games it can do so legally 100% legally. There's no law that prevents the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, the rest from fixing the outcome of their own game. It's perfectly legal to do so. So here you have a multi-billion dollar industry in the NFL, a multi-billion dollar industry in the NBA, and they're all tied to television. They're all tied to radio, which is where they make all their money. And they're also tied to corporations like Nike, McDonald's, and all the other corporate sponsors. And so it really matters to them in certain occasions who wins, who loses, what storylines advance, what stars get the you know, limelight. And so I believe these leagues, because it's legal for them to do so, will manipulate and will fix these games to get the outcomes that they want. So, for instance, next week we're going to see the start of the NFL season. Uh, all these matchups in the NFL, these teams playing one another, do you really think that the outcome might be predetermined in these games? No, I don't think every game is fixed like professional wrestling, like every match is. But what I think happens is that certain games matter more. I think primetime games, if you watched over the past few years, primetime games, amazingly, in the NFL seem to always come down to the last drive or the final two minutes. I mean, it happens probably more than 50%, probably more than 70% of the time it comes down to the last almost play in these games. Well, why is that? Well, maybe the NFL is manipulating these games subtly through officiating, through certain penalty calls, even through coaching, maybe even players, but they're manipulating these games to keep them interesting to the very end. And again, it's legal for them to do so. So people will tune in and watch and consume these games all the way to the final minutes, which is what the league wants, which is what the networks want, which is what the advertisers want. And again, they can do it legally. So I think that they don't necessarily predetermine every game that they said at the beginning of the season and say, this is who we're going to have to win the Super Bowl. But when they see certain storylines story emerge, when they see certain players get you know more attention than perhaps they assumed, then they start getting the help from the officials. They start you know pulling back on certain calls, start pushing other calls, and help these players succeed. And I think we've all seen it. I think we've seen the Michael Jordans, LeBron James, the Tom Brady's always get the calls 
And I don't think that's an accident. I think that's a league-mandated idea. So that example that you just gave, for instance, of the primetime football games being more dramatic and always coming down to these dramatic last couple of minutes moments because of some subtle penalty calls or anything like that. Is there any evidence based on what you've covered that would suggest that that is going on now? I think you use your own eyes. That's all the evidence you need. I mean, do I have like proof that these games are being fixed by the leagues? No. Do I have specific proof? No. But again, I have enough circumstantial evidence, which I present in my books, that I think can show people that, look, again, these leagues can do this legally, and you've seen it. Like I say, you've always seen certain players get the calls. You've always seen certain teams, like the New England Patriots, always get the calls. And yet those are the teams that the leagues kind of want. Those are the you know players that the leagues kind of want to push. And you look at the NBA, I and mean, for the last 40 years of the NBA, I mean, can you think of any of it as being really 100% legitimate when you know that through a guy like Tim Donahue, the former NBA ref, who is disgraced because of his gambling issues, but still he claimed that the league told them, the referees, how to do their job. And they realized that they were telling the, the league was telling the referees, we want you to help certain teams. We want you to affect other teams. And that's going to help the league in the long run get the playoff games to go to six or seven games as opposed to being a four-game sweep. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Brian Tuohy. He spends a lot of time covering this issue and a lot of time writing about this issue. You can check out his website, thefixisin.net. That's thefixisin.net. Brian, I don't think there's a sport um, more wholesome and a competition more wholesome and that embodies the best ideals of mom, apple pie, and the American flag than the Little League World Series. And yet, uh, just last month, uh, there was a child in the Little League World Series caught on an open mic saying that he thought the umpire was conspiring against his team because ESPN demanded it. Now, a lot of people laughed off this suggestion because his team won the game, but is this the kind of thing that you could see ESPN doing? Oh, totally. I totally think they could do that. I mean, that's a kid after my own heart, by the way. I love that kid. I bet. I bet. <laughs> I see that. But yeah, I mean, again, you're talking the ESPN, for example, gives the NFL over a billion dollars a year to broadcast Monday Night Football. I mean, they spend over $100 million on every Monday Night Football game just to broadcast it. That's not the cost of the announcers, the camera crews, or anything else. That's just to give to the league to be able to present these games to you. $100 million. They don't spend that kind of money on movies these days anymore. And yet they do that every week for Monday Night Football. And you don't think ESPN wants something in return for that? I mean, do you really think ESPN is going to investigate the NFL and all the improprieties that may be going on, the drug usage, the gambling involved, you know, all these other potential scandals within the league. No, they're not going to investigate it because they're spending a billion dollars into the league and investing in it. So you don't really get investigative reporting in sports anymore. You don't get the sort of dirt and, you know, coverage that you should get. The ESPN should be the watchdog Mm. for the fans, but they're not. Instead, they're the watchdog for the league to help protect the league and to just give the fans basically what they want, which is the good times and the happiness of it all by protecting the league, protecting the shield, as they like to say. The sport that I follow the most closely is baseball, and I'm sure this goes on in all sports, but in baseball, I've always noticed that there is a big effort to create these compelling 
personal narratives where these individuals are sort of taking on, they're almost like Greek mythological figures taking on these Herculean tasks and the whole country is rooting for these people to do this or to do that. The two things that we're seeing now uh, in that realm are Albert Pujols in his battle for 700 home runs. A number of people have remarked to me that uh, it seems like he's having a much easier time hitting home runs than he did at the beginning of the season. And Aaron Judge in his battle to break the American League home run record. Do those sort of things, uh, the fact that the there might be a vested interest in seeing certain players do well or break certain records, do those fit into your thesis? Oh, completely. Because you have to remember Major League Baseball has admitted, basically admitted, that they manipulate the baseballs, that they have balls that are more lively and balls that are more deadened. I mean, they've admitted this. This isn't a conspiracy theory. The league literally can manipulate the baseballs within their own specifications to make them fly 30 to 40 feet further if they so choose. So who's to say that in the case of Pujols and Judge, because balls are being switched in and out of the game constantly, who's to say that they're not using the juiced balls when these two guys are at bat and using the deadened balls when other guys are at bat? I mean, pitchers have complained about the slickness of the baseballs, the seams of the baseball, but yet Major League Baseball has supposedly done nothing about it because that's what Major League Baseball wants. I mean, ever since Rob Manford took over as commissioner of the league, he said, we want more excitement, we want more home runs. And amazingly, right after he said that, the number of home runs in Major League Baseball has spiked to an astronomical level over the past few years. Is that a coincidence, or is that just business at work? Let's talk about basketball. Um, Last month we saw NBA legend uh, Bill Russell passed away, Hall of Famer, celebrated. He kicked out of the Hall of Famer. Well, talk to me. Talk to me about Bill Russell. (laughs) Well, Bill Russell, I have files directly from the FBI through the Freedom of Information Act that says Bill Russell gambled on games in which he played. He gambled on Boston Celtic games. I have the files, the legitimate files, and anybody can ask for them through Freedom of Information Act because Bill Russell is now deceased, unfortunately. But the fact of the matter is the NBA knew this. They knew he actually he was betting alongside Wilt Chamberlain, who should also be kicked out of the Hall of Fame because he was betting on 76ers games in which he played. And, and in fact, they bet upon games in which they played against each other amazingly, both betting on the same side of the game, amazingly. So these are two guys who really should be looked at much harder for that kind of history. But the fact of the matter is, is the FBI didn't investigate it further because guess what? They were breaking the federal crime. So even though the FBI learned this and knew this, they even said in their own report, word out the police force for the NBA, let them deal with this. Mm. And of course, the NBA didn't deal with it. Let's, Still haven't dealt with it. One of the big sporting events that people are watching now and I think this is actually a pretty popular sport to bet on these days. I've never bet on it, but I know people that do, is tennis. You have the U.S. Open going on right now. And um, surely tennis, uh, an individual competition with these great athletes taking on one another, surely that's not a sport where we're going to see people rigging these games, is it? Oh, yes, you are. Actually, tennis is one I think is the second most bet upon sport in the world. And much like boxing, because it's one-on-one, it's very easy to corrupt a game because you only got to get to one player. And the fact of the matter is we know numerous players have been busted for gambling upon games in which they played, who have been busted for fixing games in which they've participated. Because you don't have to necessarily lose an entire match when you're game-fixing in tennis. You can just basically lose like the second game of the second set and have a gambling coup happen because of the all the in-game betting that's allowed now on tennis and all these sports around the world. But we know this. There's actually a tennis investigative unit 
that's supposed to seek out these crimes and prosecute people, and they have done so, although they haven't gone after anything but the low-hanging fruit. The fact of the matter is tennis is incredibly corrupt. It's been incredibly corrupt for decades. I guess what I'm trying to figure out, I don't dispute the uh, anecdotal examples that you that you point out. I guess I'm trying to figure out how much of this is done by an individual player, an individual coach, an individual official, versus how much is done institutionally by either the league or the media outlets covering the league. Well, again, it depends where you're coming from. I mean, if you're talking from the gambling aspect, there's literal crime syndicates in the Far East that are corrupting matches in all sports all over the world, especially soccer. I mean, they fix soccer matches so well, these crime syndicates can literally say, we want this game to end 3-1, to one, and they will make the game end 3-1. to one. They're that good at fixing matches. And has, again, they've done it everywhere. Has this and gotten proven. worse or gotten better since um, legalized sports betting has been implemented in the United States? Well, in the United States, it's not that big of a deal because, you know, the sports books in the United States are basically corporate-owned entities, and certain guys can't even bet $1,000 on the match. Where the games are being fixed is still in the illegal black market that still exists in the United States because the corporations only allow these guys to bet, you know, $500 a game when they want to bet $100,000 on the game. So they're not getting rid of the black market, and that's where all the betting, the coups are going to take place on these fixed matches. But the fact of the matter is, is, you know, games can be fixed. I mean, that's the thing is, even though it supposedly hasn't happened in the United States, you have to remember these are human beings, and they all have, you know, problems. They have gambling problems. They have drinking problems. They have drug problems. They have girlfriend problems. They have boyfriend problems. They have family problems. They have all these sorts of issues that the mob and organized crime has learned how to take advantage of. Blackmail Mm -hmm. these people, push on them, and get them to do their bidding when they want them to. 800-848-9222. Uh, Joe in Queens has a question. Hello, Joe. You're on yeah, with Brian. Yeah. Tui. Hi, Brian. Uh, you know, I want to go across things that would mitigate against gambling, uh, you know, across a couple of sports. One would be uh, basketball. Uh, a ref might be intimidated by the superstar. If you're a college player and Patino's your coach, you're going to get really lambasted if you don't play well. And then players do choke. So that's 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 basketball, tennis. I think players might also uh, get intimidated as they go up the ranks and they get better, and just you know like get nervous, and that would mitigate against like being able to do a good job uh, throwing a game. And then in baseball, you got players competing for a roster spot. Now, why would why would they gamble away that uh, you know when they're just trying to get a spot on a team? Well, think of it this way. Think about basketball. And I think in the NBA, we all know that game taking takes place in the NBA. And that's where teams are basically told to intentionally lose in order for the team to get a better draft pick. Well, there's only 12 guys on a roster. And if you're being told to intentionally lose, obviously you're not going to play very well, but you're going to do what you're told to do and you're going to lose the game. And that's going to cost a couple of those guys a roster spot. And it's going to cost a couple of those guys a contract. But guess what? They do it. And they don't go to the press complaining and crying and saying, hey, I'm being told to lose on purpose, but I want to do well and I want to stay in this league. No, they do as they're told. So, you know, that is a very real thing, and it's happened. We know in basketball for sure, which are 
is the very epitome of a fixed game, a tanked game like that. But it also has happened in the NFL. It's happened in the NHL. It's probably happened in Major League Baseball as well. So the fact of the matter is we know ownership can tell players to lose on purpose and they'll do it. So the question is, how far does that go? Can they tell them to do it? In the playoff game, let me squeeze in. You know they can do it in the regular season. Let me squeeze in one brief question here uh, before we let you go, Brian. Then you're going to have to come back because this has raised a lot of interesting questions. Max is in Manhattan. Max, you have a question from for Brian? Yes, uh, given uh, what he's been writing about, and I'm sure it's very controversial in in many areas. Has he ever received any death threats? No, but I have been basically censored by the major sports media, for sure. I mean, when my book, Larceny Games, came out with all the FBI files that I researched, my publisher and I were contacted by Sports Illustrated, ESPN, HBO Sports. I had interviews with 60 Minutes, producers from 60 Minutes, and guess what? Nobody covered the book whatsoever (laughs) because they had damning information on Hall of Fame players betting on games, and they didn't want that to get out. Brian, uh, we're going to have to have you back. I appreciate this, especially going into football season. You've given us a lot to lot to think about. People could check out the website, thefixisin.net. They could purchase some of the books on there as well. Brian, thank you. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. Thank you. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Again, the website, if you want to check that out, is thefixisin.net. I think it's pretty interesting. I really do. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Ah, yes, it is Monday night for some, Tuesday morning for the rest of us. But uh, you can be sure that uh, football season is here. That's where we're playing Hank Williams Jr. I thought he got canceled. Didn't he get canceled? Didn't didn't he do something that somebody didn't like and he got canceled? I've lost track. uh, I need the canceling. I used to have a, a chart of who's canceled, but you can't. It changes so often that you need a whiteboard. It just gets erased, and then you get people written back in. Sometimes you go on and go off, go on and go off. But whatever the case may be, I'm excited for football season. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to watching some uh, some good football this week. 800-848-9222. Interesting. Uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Malachi McCourt. This is actually an interview that I taped on Friday because, you know, if you're in hospice – and 91 years old, I will go to the trouble of working around your schedule. The rest of you, if you're not literally on your deathbed, then you could work around my schedule. But, okay, you make it to 90, you, you've you earned the privilege for me to tape when you want to tape. So he's going to join me in about 15 minutes to talk about um, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation very much. We have our big um, WABC gala coming up on Wednesday. And a couple of interesting things are going on here. A lot of people are going to be at this gala that I'm not usually in the same room with. You got Tony Orlando, Cousin Brucey, Dick Morris, Dina Martin, right? So what I've done, I have books written by all these people. I have assembled a collection of five books 
that I'm going to be bringing to the gala to have them signed by the people that are going because I have a, a pretty cool signed book collection. My wife is not at all pleased that I'm carrying five books to this thing to chase around people to get them to sign these books. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, but uh, that's my plan at this juncture. All right. Uh, Malachi McCourt and uh, some Labor Day observations and your phone calls coming up in just a few minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. coaster enthusiast uh, you give me a roller coaster the scarier the better goes upside down corkscrew goes fast feel like you're flying out of your seat that is my idea of fun I absolutely love it love a good roller coaster and any type of roller coaster I mean the scarier the better I don't like the Disney roller coasters because they're so safe they're so sanitary you really don't get a sense of danger most of them don't even go upside down you have a few at disney look space space mountain is fun but it, i mean it's mostly fun because it's in the dark and that adds an element of mystery to it but uh, i love the cyclone in coney island and i have long loved a lot of the rides at six flags great adventure One of the rides, I've only been on a couple of times because I haven't gone to Six Flags Great Adventure in years. But one of the rides that I've loved is El Toro. And I was actually on El Toro right when it first opened. I think maybe within the first month that it opened. And uh, I was on, I rode El Toro. And I have a picture of this and I have to find the picture of this. I'm going to try and find this today. I I have so much stuff I got to look through uh, Starting to think Rachel's right. I'm cluttering too much and co- collecting stuff and hoarding too much. But there's a photo of me on El Toro in 2006, right when it first opened, with Curtis Lewa and Ron Kuby. And uh, the 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 it, the look on all three of our faces, along with an intern that we had at the time, who's now an assistant uh, district attorney in I think Queens, is just priceless. I got to find that photo. I got to look for that. But It's a fun roller coaster. And last week, there was a big story, maybe you saw this, that multiple people were injured on this roller coaster last Thursday. And a spokesman for the Jackson Township Police Department said that uh, the injuries happened only on the El Toro ride, and thankfully most of the injuries were minor, but several people were taken to a local hospital for bumps and bruises. Um... The injured attendees went to the hospital for back and neck pain. Some people who were on the ride refused medical attention. El Toro, which means the bull in Spanish, is a wooden roller coaster that was opened back in 2006. It is the main roller coaster of the Mexican-themed section of the amusement park. And it's one of the top-rated wooden roller coasters in the United States. And it's really neat. It has this steep 
76 angle drop, a maximum speed of 70 miles per hour. Okay. It has the second largest drop height of wooden wooden roller coasters in the whole country at 176 feet, right behind the uh, Six Flags Great America Goliath, which I've never been on. So uh, the New Jersey Department of Community Affairs closed down the ride for inspection back in 2021 after it had partially derailed. No park visitors, thankfully, were injured in that incident. Um, It's expected to reopen this spring. It's closed now. It's expected to reopen this spring following intensive testing and extensive inspections by Internal experts and external experts. This is Mike Nowicki, who uh, this is audio courtesy of News 12 New Jersey, on the, uh, he's a Verona Beach resident talking about what happened. It's scary, and when it's in your own backyard, like at Six Flags, it makes you think. Because you never know, and again, things can happen at the drop of a dime, and it's, it's a little unnerving, but you got to trust, you know, the people and the officials to keep it safe. Well, you can never be too careful, but, you know, there's only so much you can worry. You still want to have some fun. We're going to talk with Malachi McCourt in a few minutes. All I'm thinking when I saw this, and my wife actually made the same remark. A lot of times, you know, she'll consume these the news stories at different times than I consume them because we're on different hours. And she'll send me articles with a comment. And her comment is often the first thing that I would have thought of. And all I'm thinking of when I see this is how the Six Flags CEO, do you remember when I denounced him over a week ago? He did this investor call. Uh, where he's his big strategy in how to save their company and stop the bleeding, his big strategy is to raise prices. Okay, not because um, not because they need to raise prices, but because he's not happy with the quality of people that are going to Six Flags. He basically said, uh, "This is pretty close to an exact quote." He basically said, "We don't want the kind of people that go to Walmart coming to Six Flags." We want the kind of people that go to Target coming to Six Flags. First of all, is the, are, is the quality of people that go to Target that much better than the quality of people that go to Walmart? Maybe it is. I don't know anything about shopping and the kind of people that go to any of these stores. But uh, let me be clear. I'm in a battle for ears, right, and, and people listening to this show. I absolutely want everybody listening. doesn't matter whether you shop at Walmart, Target, or you don't shop at all. And this elitist attitude from the CEO, Salim Basul, I think is what leads to stuff like this. Now, I'm not saying because he said this, this is what happened. Not, I'm not implying karma or anything like that. But I'm saying if this guy would be a little bit more focused on doing proper maintenance on da- potentially dangerous rides and not getting people injured instead of raising prices to price his existing customers out of his theme park, maybe we wouldn't see people getting injured on these roller coasters. Maybe we wouldn't see these roller coasters derailing. It's just my two cents. 800-848-9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi, there, Frank. I don't know if you heard, but the jet star at Seaside Life is being torn down. The, the what? The jet star. The jet star. I've never been on that. Oh, okay. And I was, of course, at Asbury Park. This is like years ago. I don't think they even have roller coasters anymore. 
down there. Uh, Six Flags does, of course. They have several. Um, but I haven't been down the Jersey Shore in so many years, Frank, that I don't even think they have roller coasters anymore. I'm going to have to go go to Coney Island. <laughs> Well, in Atlantic City, they still have a, a fair amount of rides. So go, tra- take a trip down to the Steel Pier. You'll see some great rides. Thank you, Carol. 800-848-9222. couple of things. One, I uh, want to encourage you to uh, join our Facebook group. You can just go on Facebook and search um, Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. As I can tell, currently, there are three big villains in this Facebook group. And it's, this group is meant to be a forum. I mean, I guess it's too hope, uh, too much to hope that people would be polite to one another. But it's meant to be a forum for people to discuss the show, right? And mostly the show. Not to post articles about stuff that has nothing to do with the show and talk about that. No, it's meant to be stuff that we cover on the show. For instance, now, if you wanted to have a discussion about roller coasters, have it, right? But... um as I could tell, there are, at the moment, three big villains in this Facebook group. One is Curtis. A lot of people unhappy with a lot of the things Curtis says. All right. I mean, again, I feel like we've got to move on, okay? Curtis makes this crazy remark, that crazy remark. Move on. Move on. It's all in fun. It's all in fun. <laughs> Two is me, right? I don't know. The, the haters are really taking their role very seriously. Frank did this, Frank did that, Frank does this, Frank does that. Okay, and then lastly, and I I'm, hate to see this, people love to pick on Ellen, who is one of our most thorough, prolific, and on-point commenters, and I'm seeing people pick on her. Leave Ellen alone. Stick with Curtis and me. We can handle people uh, giving us a hard time. want to mention, before we go to Malachi McCord, uh, we're just a couple of days away from September 11th, And uh, I think a lot of us that were in New York at the time, we lost people that we cared about uh, in September 11th. And my friend Jeff Giordano was a firefighter, and uh, I miss him. I was just with his widow on Saturday. And I can tell you the fact that uh, her husband was taken away from her, it still leaves a very visible void in her life and in her family's life. And that's why... I really am so proud to partner with the Tunnel to Towers Foundation and participate in their upcoming walk on September 25th. I'm hoping some of you will walk with me. And even if you can't walk with me, I'm hoping you'll make a small donation. You can go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. I want to thank those of you that have already made a, a donation. My mom, Stephanie, Donna, I'm assuming that's Donna from Huntington because she's a big supporter. Jody Fendrick, uh, Joe from Huntington, uh, Marianne Boudin. Uh, Thank you to everybody that's already made a donation. A lot of people have chosen to make that donation anonymously. Ellen Bess, Paul Regali. So thank you to everybody, uh, but I really could use your help. Uh, Please go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com and uh, help us make a difference in the lives of military servicemen who are killed or who come back injured and never the same. The Tunnel Towers Foundation does some great work, and we could use your help. So uh, walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. Malachi McCourt joins us in just a moment. We'll talk about dying. We'll talk about radio. We'll talk about comedy and a bunch of other things. 
And uh, a little bit later, we have commendations coming up. And it is Tuesday, so we may even do the mail today as well. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Oh, the summertime is coming And the trees are sweetly blooming the wild mountain tide grows around the blooming heather will ye go let go and we'll all go together to black wild mountain this is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano uh, this is Wild Mountain Time by Sarah Calderwood. I tried to find one of the many versions of this song performed by our next guest over the years, but unfortunately, every single version of this song is that is sung by him, that I could find anyway, is drowned out by a chorus of drunken Irishmen. Now, not that that's not delightful to hear, not if you're one of the drunken Irishmen especially, but... Uh, For broadcast purposes, the Sarah Calderwood version sort of does the trick. I have to tell you, of all the interviews that I've done of late, there are few that have gotten a better response to uh, my, uh, that I've gotten a better response to than my discussion with Malachi McCourt recently. If you are aware of who Malachi McCourt is, you already know what a great wit he is. You are already aware of what this veteran actor, writer, humorist, former pub owner, and uh, just overall New York personality is capable of. But if you're not aware yet of Malachi McCourt, then I almost envy you because you are about to experience one of the great intellectuals of our time, one of the great comic geniuses of our time, one of the great philosophers of our time, and a guy that's so wise that he might not even fully comprehend what he's saying. He's the author of several books. Uh, Recently, his masterpiece, Among Swimming, was re-released, and uh, his book on the subject of dying is as uh, as relevant today as ever, especially for him. It's called Death Need Not Be Fatal. I say that because uh, he's joining us from hospice care, uh, where he is in the process of supposedly dying in his 90s. So I guess uh, in a manner of speaking, joining us live from his deathbed is the one and only Malachi McCourt. Malachi, it is great to talk with you again, my friend. My dear man, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hardly able to stir after that wonderful obituary you just read, and it, uh, but I'm doing my best to sit up and uh, <laughs> because the uh, 
uh, I get tired of examining my ceiling. <laughs> and uh, so I have to sit up and, uh, and take notice of what's going on and, and, and have a chat with yourself. I, um, I'm delighted. Uh, my, uh, I'm in the hospice uh, care, as you said. At, uh, I'll be 91 in, uh, in September 20th. And uh, so it's, uh, it's amazing. I'm astonished that I am uh, still here. But the hospice care is at home. And I have, uh, they give you six months in, uh, to live. And then if you, do, if, you, if you live, they kick you off uh, hospice. If you die, they kick you off, off hospice. <laughs> so either way, you're, you're, you lose the hospice care at the end of six months if you die or if you don't die. So anyway, I have until uh, the 9th of November before I die or get off hospice. <laughs> and then the way it's looking is uh, I'm, I'm trying to appear weak and feeble and and uh, I'm not working. It's not working because I'm 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 uh, my my instincts are still to be a smart ass, and that's it for today. Uh, I mean, uh, in the sense you you, know, you are certainly pulling that off. And uh, I don't know about you, but if I had a choice of leaving hospice, either by dying or by living, I would certainly choose uh, the the latter. Um, you know, Maliki, you were such a well-known New York personality going back to decades as a talk show guest, as a talk show host, as an actor, a pub owner, an occasional humorist. But uh, something interesting happened in the 1990s. Your brother Frank wrote one of the best-reviewed memoirs of all time, one of the best-selling memoirs of all time, and that's not an exaggeration, Angela's Ashes. You're obviously a character in your brother's memoir as well. Well, and it seemed like all of a sudden you went from being sort of regionally known and known uh, by uh, people on both coasts as a, as a comic and a wit and an interesting person to being nationally and internationally known as Frank McCourt's brother. Now, what is that like for you going from being so well known in your own right and for Frank being known as Maliki's brother for all these years to then being known as Frank McCourt's brother uh, if, starting about 30 years? years ago well it uh, uh, I was so you know Frank Frank was always the uh, great genius he left school as I did at the age of uh, 13 because we were so miserably poor and poverty-stricken in Ireland living in Islam and my mother living on a couple of dollars a week and my father having deserted us and we were hungry and miserable and cold. And uh, I don't know how we bloody were, but two, uh, two of the brothers died. My sister died in, I was born in Brooklyn, but we went to Ireland after that. And so it, uh, that, that was uh, a horrendous time in, uh, in Ireland. And so I'm not sentimental about that place at all. Two brothers died, two more were born. So they're all dead now, and I'm the last one left. But anyway, Frank came here, and he got in the, went into the service and, and uh, did his couple of years, and he got the GI Bill. Now, he had never been to high school. Somehow or another, 
he managed to talk his way into New York University, and they gave him probation and allowed him to to graduate with a bachelor's degree, and he got a master's, and then he taught at one of the most prestigious high schools in the country, Stuyvesant, in uh, in Manhattan. Oh, that's pretty impressive. And he, I mean, that's, and he, uh, that's one so of the then, best schools in the whole country, Stuyvesant. Yep. So he then catapulted into fame when he wrote Angela's Ashes. And he got such reviews, and they made it into a movie. I can't tell you how delighted I was to uh, that, that 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 happened, because nobody was more deserving of it, because he was just the most generous, decent guy you ever met. Died far too soon, mm. but anyway, there it was. <clears throat> so anyway, I am writing another book, which is called, and my title I have at the moment anyway, is I read your brother's book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a book I can't wait to read. Hey, well, speaking Frank. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have you had other siblings as well. Your brother Alfie, the youngest of the McCourt brothers, uh, became a writer in his own right. And uh, you've had other siblings. It's funny, you know. I'm friendly with the the Gotti family, and the Gottis are mostly well known for being mobsters. You had John Gotti, who was the boss of the Gambino crime family. His brother. Peter was the boss of the Gambino crime family. His brother, Gene, a high-ranking member of the Gambino crime family. Their brother, Vincent, I believe, was a soldier in the Gambino crime family, but certainly in the mob. And it's funny, John Gotti Jr. once told me that um, there's a Gotti brother, a brother of John Gotti, that no one knows about. They call him the black sheep of their family. His name's Bill Gotti. He lives in California, has nothing to do with organized crime. A legitimate guy just ran a restaurant or something. And uh, then there's also, of course, Daniel Baldwin, who I think by any objective measure is the least known of all the Baldwin brothers. Of the McCourt brothers, if you were to pick a, 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 a Daniel Baldwin or a Bill Gotti, who would it be? Who is the McCourt sibling that no one knows, if there is one? Mike McCourt. Mike McCourt. Mike McCourt, yeah. I mean, of course, there's the two dead ones, Eugene. And Oliver, they died in Ireland, and my sister died in Brooklyn. But Mike, Mike survived, and uh, he hired himself off to California. And there he became one of the most, in San Francisco, one of the most beloved uh, keep barkeeps that ever was out there. And uh, he used to, what's on him, the governor, uh, um, was a good friend of his. She um, popped in, used to go and see him. And uh, just about anybody in California uh, knew my brother Mike. And of of note, knew him. But he he died uh, also. And, uh, but he was the one. He was the, he was the, 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 the unknown Hmm. equivalent of the Gotti lab, Bill Gotti <laughs> and Mike. And when he died about uh, five five years ago, there were numerous, uh, for an obscure bartender, obscure, which he wasn't, 
they wrote the obituaries in the papers out there were so big and laudatory. And one columnist wrote that there are no celebrities in San Francisco, with one exception, Mike McCourt. (laughs) What's his deal? He couldn't figure out how to write a memoir like the rest of the family? What, did he skip that uh, course at the the dinner table in your family? Well, he, he, uh, well, of course, we had no dinner. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that'll do it. Dinner was a cup of tea and a slice of bread, so there was no dinner table. But uh, but anyway, we were always we we always did have the joke, and we did uh, the great thing. Great thing was the library came to Limerick, and Frank and I, and Mike and and and, and Alfie, ate the books there. <laughs> ate them. We didn't read them. We ate them. Well, I'm guessing they had a lot of fiber. So good for you. Um, you know, you mentioned that you're in hospice. You clearly are approaching death with the best attitude I've ever heard anybody approach death. You, you wrote a book even before it was well known that you were close to dying. Although, as you said in the book, you come from a long line of dead people. It's called yes, de- de- <laughs> Death Need Not Be Fatal. What are you going to uh, miss most? as you pass on to the next chapter of your existence or non-existence? What was that, Frank? What was the question? As you uh, pass on to the next chapter of whatever, whatever, whatever lies beyond this plane, what are you going to miss most? Uh, I am... Uh, the thing that most Irish men are loath to say, to use the word love, in uh, any kind of intimate relationship. I mean, we will say things. We will say, we will say, oh, I love, uh, you know, a soccer team, or I love this bar, or I, uh, but anything except this uh, love my wife. And the thing is that I'm not loath to say that. I love my wife, Diana. She's number two in my life. She was. My first wife just died a while ago. But my wife, Diana, is very much alive. And uh, she's a very caring and was indeed one, considered one of the most beautiful women in New York. Nora Ephron told me that. And yet she was modest and is. So I love her and I would miss her enormously. Uh, I love my kids. I have, uh, I love them. I, I have, I have four of them, and I have uh, nine grandchildren and one great. So I think it is mm. the loving people. I'm sober now, twenty uh, thirty-seven years, and uh, booze was also my disease, but I managed to get uh, sober a day at a time. I still am. So I hope that I will die sober and loving, and that's it. So what will I miss? 
I'll miss my family. That's wonderful. Uh, That's wonderful and and sad at the same time. In a couple of weeks, you're going to be 91 years old, which is pretty good. You've uh, beaten absolutely beaten all the actuarial estimates, and as the American life expectancy is going down to a rate that we haven't seen since 1996, you're going in the opposite direction. So give give the folks listening, Maliki, a little bit of advice. If someone wants to make it to their 90s, what should they be doing? Well, I would say that the the best way that to live, I think, is moderation in all things, in the in the food department, in the drink department, and in the dislike. I mean, we are we're we're all getting very excited about uh, about uh, about what's happening in our political and international life. And I can't do anything about that. I mean, I'm not making any secret of the fact. First of all, stay away from hate. Never, never, never hate. It's a killer. It it turns on you, see? So I I never say I hate anything. I might say I dislike or I'm uncomfortable with, but I never say I hate this. All right. People use it to... Loosely, it's a very powerful word that gets into your being. So never say that uh, about anything. There's nobody. Because if, if, if you hate somebody or something, that turns on you because hate will envelop you. And, uh, and that, that colors your life. So don't do it. So the thing is, you can dislike somebody, but that's about as far as it goes, I, I no human being can cause me to uh, use or be hateful. Well, it's great. It's great advice. Uh, your book, Among Swimming, is uh, something that has uh, been a bestseller. It's gotten a lot of wonderful reviews over the years, and uh, you've decided to re-release that book, and people can check that book out on Amazon or, or elsewhere. How come? Why are you uh, re-releasing this uh, this book, which is uh, now a few decades old? Well, my, um, it's, it's not, the, the thing is that my, 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 uh, uh, public for, for the guy that said to me, that rang me up one day and said, John Weber, he's a publisher, welcome rain publishing, who are publishing amongst women. He say, he called me and said, uh, I knew him, um, socially. And he said to me, uh, Maliki, after it was a self Frank wrote uh, among uh, Angela's ashes, he said to me, Maliki, you have a book in you. And that sort of sat me back. So I said... Was it the one that I ate? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, do I have to have a literary bowel movement? <laughs> 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 he said, now stop the around, you know, effing around. You have a book. So he said, I'd like to publish it. So uh, then he called me and said, it's too small, too big for me. I'm going to get you an agent. So he got me an agent. And they uh, ended it. And at uh, Hyperion, which is uh, Disney, published it. And it became a bestseller. Mm. And uh, off we went, and that was it. So 
I couldn't get over the fact that all I did was write down some thoughts that I had that amused me. And uh, there is an... Uh, and I, and I, in the sense that I, I, I took it in degree seriously, as much as I could. But off it went, and then came the next one, and uh, then the next one. I then I wrote a history of Ireland. Then I wrote a thing for uh, alcoholics, a day at a time book, and so I was just having so so much, so much fun with this writing business. And I never thought I could because I you know I know nothing about grammar, not a bloody thing. I couldn't tell anything about it. All I know was that if you have a, uh, it's like having an ear. I think for music, I know by ear when something is grammatically incorrect, but I couldn't tell you why. And, and, and the teacher just said to me in school, the, the, uh, the unanswerable question, how can you be so stupid? <laughs> <laughs> I still don't have the answer. I don't know. I just thought you thought, well, it's very easy. <laughs> it, it comes natural. Believe me, I, I would tell folks the same thing. Uh, talking with uh, Malachi McCourt. Malachi, as anybody that uh, hears your beautiful accent can tell, you were, of course, born in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah. What people may not be able to tell behind that beautiful Brooklyn accent of yours is that uh, as a youth, you moved to Ireland along with your family. But then in 1952, you came back uh, to the United States of America. Why? Why did you choose to come back to the United States after and leave? beautiful Ireland? Well, beautiful Ireland was, as I often tell people, it's the one thing that's inedible is scenery. You can't eat it. <laughs> I, I came back and I uh, I got, of course, having no uh, educational qualifications for anything. I got work as a, as a dishwasher and I got work as a laborer on, and I worked uh, on the uh, docks as a longshoreman, and then uh, one night I walked into a theater. I wanted, I used to love to go to the theater, and I just thought, I'd, well, yeah, here, there was some uh, off Broadway, very cheap then. It was only eight dollars. Just loved that, so I went to see an Irish play. Then I thought it'd be great to be an actor. So I walked back in and I asked the guy, "How do I join their group?" And he said, what do you mean? I'd like to be, I'd like to, he said, do you have any experience? I said, no, I wouldn't need it. I'm Irish. And he laughed and he said, uh, do you have pictures? And I did. I said, I had, uh, I had a gra- autographed picture of the sacred in my wallet. So he coming off the ladder anyway, because he was hanging up something. He said, would you read for us? And I thought it was a literacy test. Hmm. Come back on Sunday, and I come back on Sunday, and I read. And somebody was leaving the cast, my age at the time. I was in my early 20s. And he gave me a part in the play. And I got great reviews. And then I used to go down to a bar around the corner, bringing the audience. And then I used to do, and then somebody asked me, to, Tom O'Malley asked me to go on to the night show with Jack Parr. I was wondering, what the hell for? He said, you're a great talker. Okay. So I didn't know what that was about. But anyway, I drank and went on, and I was, uh, just said it was funny. 
So they asked me back again and again and again. Then somebody said, how about opening up your own bar? I said, sure. I was a great yes man, Frank. <laughs> I see that. I see that. Seems like a lot of the people around you had some good ideas and uh, and you, maybe even your best interests at heart. Uh, just in terms of that Tonight Show with Jack Parr chapter of your life again, would you always do the Jack Parr show drunk, or was it just your first appearance on Jack Parr that you did drunk? Well, it wasn't so much. Again, I never considered myself drunk, but I did not go on without a few gargles, you know. That was it. I needed to uh, have some kind of refreshment. And uh, so it was It was always at least high on the par. So anyway. Well, no, I can. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to any prospective talk no. show guests that are listening to us. But whatever works. Um, if you had to pick Malachi, maybe this is an unfair question, but you're the person, I think, to ask it to. You've chronicled, and in our last discussion, you mentioned all the variety of health issues you have, including some terminal illnesses. But um, if you had to pick, what is the best thing about dying? Well, the the fact is that you know you are. And the fact is that, for example, now here, you said dying, which most Americans avoid saying. Um, it's always passed away, left us, no longer with us, gone to heaven with the Lord, bought the farm, and every uh, euphemism you can imagine, except he's dead or he's dying, you know. So don't avoid it. We can't. We're all mortal beings, and off we go. And that's the, and that is, uh, I have a death date which at the moment I'm not going to keep because it's supposed to be uh, November 9th. So, but if I do die on that day, can I be on the show on the 10th, please? Oh, absolutely. There's uh, nobody that I'd rather celebrate their death date with uh, than you. You, you, can, you can count on that. When you were in your, your bar days as a, as a bar owner, um, there was one instance that uh, you've written about in your book where you actually got stopped by your own bouncer. Now, how does that happen? Wouldn't the bouncer of your establishment, the establishment that bore your name, know who you are? How does that happen? Well, I had partners, and um, uh, Frank, and uh, at Malachi's, Malachi's was Malik, which was the first singles bar in New York. And I was doing a play with the people who hired me because we, then they hired me in the next play, and I got grave reviews. Uh, uh, Brooks, uh, Rupert Brooks, was the great critic of the Times, and he said that I was excellent as the pusillanimous lover. <laughs> now, Jesus, I had to look up that word, pusillanimous. And I, uh, and that was it. It was sort of weak and, uh, and <laughs> anyway, look it up yourself. So anyway, uh, so I used to be uh, doing the play and then coming to the bar after, but uh, it got, the bloody place got so popular at 63rd and 3rd Avenue that people used to line up in big queues of people outside. So I used to just come up and go in. But while I was away, the partners hired a bouncer, and I didn't know about it. So I arrive after the play, and I go, I see this line up, this queue outside, trying to get into this bloody rundown old joint. 
And I went to walk in, and this big guy stopped me and said, hey, Mac. I didn't know that he knew my name. He said, Mac, where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going in. He said, do you see that line? And I said, yes. Well, he said, get in it. And I said to him, so my, my name, Maliki, was up on the canopy. And I said, do you see that name up there? I, he said, yeah. I said, well, that's me. Look, he said, every asshole says that. Get to the back of the line. <laughs> and he wouldn't let me in. So I went off and got drunk at another bar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, going to the competition, even if it means uh, taking a few dimes out of your own pocket. That's great. Hey, why did you uh, why did you quit drinking back in 1985? Well, it was ruining my life and uh, with my beloved wife, and uh, that was it. So I stopped. It was hard. it caused me it was caused me to act stupidly and uh, and, and death defying. So I just stopped. That was it. So I went to AA and got sober, and uh, there I am. Oh, but, 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 well, that's great. That's great. And something and certain... I've never been happier. That's the thing. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, that is absolutely terrific. It, it, one of my favorite films, actually, bar none, my favorite film that you've ever appeared in is the Richard Pryor film, uh, Brewster's Millions. You play the doorman, and uh, you don't look like you've aged much, even though that film's about 40 years old. Uh, what was it like working with Richard Pryor? He had a little bit of a reputation as a as a wild man. Certainly his talents were undeniable. How did you find Richard Pryor as somebody to work with and somebody to be around? I, I found him, he was very gentle guy, actually. And uh, he uh, he was at the, my, I was a door, I was playing a doorman at the Plaza Hotel. And he, and we were, uh, he used to come and chat with me. And we would just have quietly chat between takes and what have you. So this one day, I'm talking to him, and a taxi pulled up. And a woman got out, and the driver got out and went to the back of the taxi, opened up the trunk, and took out two suitcases. And she looked up at Pryor and myself, and she said loudly, You, she said, Dorman, stop talking to the riffraff and get down here and get take my bags. Well, Pryor, well, he was not well-dressed for the part, you know. He was playing the millionaire guy. So... Uh, and I said to him, will you give me a hand? And he said, sure. So Pryor and I walked down the steps, and we picked up the – he picked up one bag, and I picked, I picked up the other. <laughs> and we went in, and then she gave she, – she took up two quarters and gave one to Pryor and one to me. <laughs> That's and terrific. He said, no, thanks. You need it better. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Maliki, as always happens whenever we're together, uh, uh, the time has just flown by. We're just about out of time, but there's one last question I have to ask you before we yes. uh, before we go. One, uh, you are an Irish-American, probably one of the best-known Irish-Americans in the whole country. My son is uh, part Irish. His mother's maiden name is O'Brien. He's not, all of nine months old now, looks very Irish, looks far more Irish than he does Italian. Any yes. advice for me as uh, somebody that's raised a number of Irish children yourself. Any advice on raising an Irish-American successfully? Uh, I would say uh, read to him early and encourage him to read. 
And he will make up his own mind about where he's going in life, no matter what you say. But uh, just just try and give him a, 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 a very good working knowledge of the, of the language so that he's able to express himself without frustration. And be sure to tell him every day that you love him. Oh, well, that's that's wonderful. That second part is easy, and I'll work on the first. Maliki, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you socially on Friday. I uh, hope, uh, hope all goes well, and I uh, hope you outlive that hospice, and we're talking to you on your death date. <laughs> well, Frank Romano, you are the most generous, uh, decent, uh, understanding um, and 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 a nice humorous host, and I appreciate your your I appreciate your knowledge and your insights, and a long life to you and good health uh, at all times, and to you and your wife and your children. Thank you very much, uh, Maliki. I appreciate that very much. And uh, after uh, every, every conversation I have with you, my anger at the people of the state of New York grows even greater uh, for the fact that they elected Elliot Spitzer governor in 2006 instead of you. Had they elected you, this state and everybody in it would be in a much better position than we actually are. Maliki McCourt, uh, if you want to check out the book, Death Need Not Be Fatal, you can get it in bookstores, you can get it online as you can among swimming and uh, be on the lookout for his uh, next book. I read your brother's book, which should certainly be chock full of interesting anecdotes. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you could give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight straight ahead. The other side of midnight. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you still be sending me a valentine, birthday greetings, bottle of wine? I stay out till a quarter to three Would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? This is the great Sal, the voice, Valentinetti, who I've uh, gotten to meet many times over the years. He's a, a part of my friend Dave Damiani's whole clique. And uh, I think his version of not only this song, but so many songs done by classic standard artists are I think this version is among the best that I've ever heard and uh, I gotta invite Sal on the show he's uh, an interesting guy and very funny and as you can hear here he's a great singer I could be handy mending a fuse when your lights have gone 
You could knit a sweater by the fireside. Sunday mornings go for a ride. So I'm, I'm going to reach out to Sal, see if I get him back on the show. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, getting great response via email uh, to uh, folks really enjoying the interview with Malachi McCourt. If you want to comment on uh, anything that uh, that we're doing, you can do so, 800-848-9222. But you could also email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. You know, I was talking about this uh, WABC gala that we're having on Wednesday. Now, here's the situation. This is a black tie gala. And my wife reminded me about this. And, and this is... When you work, you know, if you're awake at this time, you know when you work these hours, sometimes just getting the ordinary stuff done that everybody else gets done is a struggle. So my wife reminds me on Friday, you know, this is a black tie, Gala. Now, I don't currently own a tuxedo, so I have to rent one. And I um, Friday comes and goes, and uh, the, this tuxedo store is closed by the time that I call them. So then I call them Saturday at the time that they're open. I violated my own rule of not using the phone on Saturday to call the tuxedo place. And I was just going to tell them, hey, I, I was just in there a month or two ago. I rented a tuxedo. I don't think my measurements have changed significantly. Can you just have one ready? I'll give you the deposit over the phone. No answer. So I leave a voice message. No one calls me back. Sunday, they're closed. Now, it says on the Internet that they open Monday at noon. Even though Monday's Labor Day, I figured maybe they're open, maybe they're not open. So I call them Monday at noon. The phone rings. Phone rings. Someone answers the, answers the telephone. Says, hello. And I said, hello, is this such and such? You know, I, I don't want to name the business. I said, is this Tuxedos R Us? That's not the name of it. He says, yes. But we're closed. We open tomorrow at 11. I said, all right, I'll I'll call you tomorrow at 11. And all I'm thinking is, why did they answer the phone if they're closed and they don't want to have a tuxedo conversation? Why answer your business line? I'm assuming this is the guy's mobile phone that he has forwarded to him. But why answer your business line on your day off if you're closed? And the guy almost laughed. Yeah, ha, ha. So hopefully, hopefully they'll be able to get my tuxedo together for uh, this uh, gala Wednesday evening. Otherwise, I don't know. I'll have to. I'll try another place, or I'll try and met, go in a dark suit and and hope nobody notices. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Igor is in Fairfield, New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Hey there, Frank. Uh, two things: the interview with Malachi spectacular. I'm Thanks. glad that you were able to get to him that second that second time. Um, comment, though, you know, uh, he probably, uh, I would guess this kind of attitude comes from the fact that maybe he thought he was, his whole life he was playing with house money. Given how those kids, how they were raised, mm. and I w- did read his brother's book, maybe that's the reason he said everything else it just comes for free. Well, that's a good point, uh, Igor, could certainly be the case. Uh, and you know what, maybe that's a good attitude that we should all have. Oh, absolutely. Second thing, Frank, you were talking about the CEO of Six Flags, and I know you're such a savvy guy when it comes to demographics. I think, generally speaking, maybe 
maybe it took it a little too far, maybe a little dramatic. I, I think his, his, he shouldn't say what he said, at least publicly, but the Walmart buyer versus the Target buyer, it's probably just a measure of how much money is in their pocket when they go to his park. And maybe a tar- Target buyer maybe has a budget of 250 bucks, and maybe a Walmart buyer only has $100 in their pocket. Yeah, I just think raising prices without offering any additional services just at the time. And I said this at the time, I thought it was so disrespectful and disloyal to the kinds of people that are keeping Six Flags in business. And I think, you know, raising prices out of spite, which is what I construed it as. I get that you want to attract a different type of clientele, but I think that the the way to do that is to offering the offer the kind of services that that kind of clientele might respond to, not not to just raise prices. But I hear what you're saying, Igor. Thanks. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Frank, wonderful interview with my favorite honorary uncle, Maliki. Thank you. And uh, I'll share with you a, a funny story that happened. After you and Rachel had left this event that the three of us were present that was held in honor of Malachi and Coney Island last year, as soon as I saw Malachi, instead of talking about the event itself, he wanted to talk about our favorite classical music series that we go to in Manhattan. Well, uh, that's uh, very Malachi. John, thank you. I'm, uh, I was glad to see you there. Appreciate that very much. Commendations coming up in mere minutes. I'll also take your calls, 800-848-9222. Till then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano, moments away from commendations. But uh, a little bit of breaking news here. I've been informed that Alex Barnard is not only attending the gala, but he will be wearing a suit. No tuxedo for Alex Barnard. Now, I didn't realize that Alex Barnard was confirmed as going. I'm certainly glad he is. But I'm even gladder now that he's not wearing a tuxedo. So, if I'm not wearing a tuxedo, I'm just going to act like I don't know who Alex Barnard is and point to that guy and say, look, look at that guy. That guy's not even wearing a tuxedo. But, uh, Matt Blaze, you're going to this thing and yes. and, uh, and and Kenneth is going. You're both going to be tuxedoed. I will be tuxedoed up. Nice. Okay. Yes, sir. Now, we don't have to interact with one another at this thing, right? I mean, are we at the I same table? Not. Yeah, is there tables? <laughs> I th- I don't know. I'm not sure. Be like I'm not a sure. show table. I don't. I, I, yeah, I mean, hopefully not. <laughs> I, mean, I can't imagine. Every yeah, gets a table. Yeah. it's gonna be like that. Two hours of conversing with you guys without like a show to break it up. It's it's gonna be tough for us. So, uh, so we'll see what happens. Well, that'll be good. That'll be good. And uh, I am honestly, in all sincerity, glad that Alex Barnard is is wearing the suit because even if I have a tuxedo, I can still because. I don't think because he works overnight, not everyone knows what Alex Barnard looks like. I could say, who is that guy? Why is he wearing a suit? It's pretty embarrassing. Did you not see the invitation? It says black tie. It doesn't say black suit. It's black tie. So we'll see how uh, we'll see how that goes. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to take your calls throughout the hour. 
And, um, you know, uh, Alex Barnard just messaged me that he won't, will not be talking to me now. It comes it's a great disappointment to me. We're going to send him to talk with Crits and the Catskills and John in Brooklyn because uh, the conversation will be largely the same. All right. I don't know. What do you think I know? <laughs> By the way, we want to congratulate Alex Barnard yet again on uh, his hit new single, which is just tearing up the charts on uh, on iTunes. And uh, if you didn't hear our discussion about his new single on Friday, go back and listen to Friday's podcast. If you missed any portion of the show on Friday or any day, subscribe to The Other Side of Midnight. Just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano on any podcast app. And we usually do this on Monday, but since I was off yesterday and because Curtis did not maintain our weekly tradition of doing this, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. I must begin with giving a commendation to Serena Williams. Serena Williams is calling it a career. Now, um... She did not necessarily fare that well in the most recent tennis ex- exhibition that she was in. She didn't win, but uh, she is a warrior, and uh, she is moving beyond tennis. And uh, she has reti- is retiring from a career that has been inspirational. I think President Obama even put out a statement talking about how many people on and off the court she has inspired. And that is absolutely true. And it's particularly true of black women. Uh, How many thousands of black girls do you think have been inspired to pick up a tennis racket and start playing because of Serena Williams? They call this term GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, gets thrown out a great deal. There's a strong case to be made that Serena Williams could be the greatest female tennis player of all time. Twenty three Grand Slam titles. She opened up a world of tennis shoes, sneakers, that was primarily dominated, I don't want to say primarily, exclusively dominated by white athletes. And uh, she will go down in history, along with Arthur Ashe and others, as being not only a gifted athlete, but somebody that broke barriers for minority athletes. She is uh, an incredible player who has had an incredible career. And 20 years ago, those of you that saw the movie, King Richard may be aware of some of this. Not that that everything in that film is necessarily true, but she and her sister Venus were booed by an American crowd at Indian Wells in 2001. And there were rumors that her father decided which sister would win when they faced each other. A rumor that was... Not true, we don't think. But it managed to be both racist and sexist at the same time. And yet Serena, through it all, was too good to be deterred. And I think uh, the fact that she's leaving the main tennis stage at the age of 40 and with a daughter, she won the Australian Open while pregnant. She developed life-threatening blood clots after delivering her daughter, and then went on to reach three more Grand Slam titles. This is crazy. I mean, it's amazing. She played on her own terms. And uh, she might not want a lot of fanfare, but she certainly deserves it. Uh, So congratulations to Serena Williams on an incredible career.
I want to give a commendation to the practice of singing. Some new research shows this is good news in our house because my wife swing, sings to my son every night that she puts him to bed. And I sing to him very often, but he's much luckier when she gets to sing to him. She's actually a really good singer. Singing is a powerful tool, and babies tune into singing more than talking. And even if you don't think you have a great voice, your baby will love it. Research also shows that singing to your baby has, ready for this, a huge impact on their brain development. Experts found that singing lullabies to your little one comforts both you and your baby simultaneously. Singing lowers your baby's heart rate, decreases anxiety, and releases endorphins, which can decrease pain. Lullabies allow infants to create neural pathways for calming down, soothing, falling asleep. Uh, Something that is very important, especially in the early months of life. So I know there's probably a bunch of people that are awake right now because they have a newborn and they're feeding him or her at this odd hour of the night. And if that applies to you, consider singing. Additionally, by the way, singing, according to this research, singing play songs, tunes that involve clapping, smiling, and other forms of playing, it increases babies' attention and it helps them forge closer, even more loving connections with whoever's singing to them. So a lot of good news on the research front. In terms of singing, I must also commend black tea. The more we learn about black tea, the more we learn that if you drink it, you're less likely to die. That's right. According to the United Nations, tea is the world's most consumed drink after water. Reminds me. Take a sip of water there. Black tea is most common in the United Kingdom and the United States. Green tea, jasmine tea, and fruit and herbal teas are more popular in other countries. Both black and green teas come from the same plant. The difference between them is how they're processed after picking. Both are picked, wilted, bruised, and rolled before drying. Black tea is then oxidized by exposing it to air for some time. So researchers have long studied the health benefits of different teas. Some suggest green tea has greater health benefits, while others advocate the health-giving qualities of black black tea. Either way, antioxidants seem to be key. Listen to this, though. Now, a prospective cohort study of tea-drinking habits in almost half a million people. This is big. Half a million people from the U.K. Biobank has supported the benefits of black tea tea. This new study has found that drinking two or more cups of black tea daily, with or without milk, may reduce mortality from all leading causes of death by up to 12%. I got to tell you, this is one of those things, much like my digital detox Saturday, this is one of those articles where you read it, and, and it's very rare for me anyway, to read an article that causes you to immediately change your behavior. This will take almost no effort from me. I am going to make sure that I am consuming two cups of black tea specifically each day. I'll, re- I'll replace two of my cups of coffee with uh, with black tea, and I would love to have a 12% decreased risk of mortality. 
I am not loving mortality. I want to give a uh, commendation to Dr. Mehmet Oz. Now, Dr. Mehmet Oz is getting a lot of attention these days because he's running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. But this was a story last week that I don't think got a lot of attention. And I guess it's because anything involving Dr. Oz now is so politically polarized. But I did want to mention this because this is important. Dr. Mehmet Oz was on an American Airlines flight from Louisville to Philadelphia last Saturday. Not two days ago, but... Nine days ago. And he helped revive a 27-year-old male passenger who collapsed. Dr. Oz said, I was sitting in my seat and a woman a few rows ahead of me yelled out that there was a crisis. I ran to the bay and a gentleman had collapsed to the ground. He'd been trying to get into the bathroom. When I got to him, he was conscious but disoriented. I asked the stewardess to come help and get me something with sugar in it. So the flight attendants brought Dr. Oz some soda for the passenger The passenger remained seated on the ground for 10 minutes while he drank more fluid. The man eventually recovered and received medical treatment later on. And Dr. Oz said it's important that people who are planning to fly recognize the dangers of dehydration. Now, that's an important lesson, but it's it's a lesson that is being amplified because Dr. Oz is the person saying it. And so I think that's an important thing. I think it was great that he rushed in to help this guy. He could have just sat there and not been bothered. And I think it's great that he used it as an opportunity to teach people about the importance of hydration. Um, All right. I want to commend. Let's see here. I think we might have skipped one of these. But, um, okay. I want to commend religion. Religion is tied to better heart health for black Americans. Listen to this. Black Americans who go to church and pray regularly have better cardiovascular health than black Americans who are not as religious or who have no religious beliefs. This is pretty interesting. This is a study that's been published in the Journal of the American Heart Association, and it used survey responses and health screenings for 2,967 African Americans in and around Jackson, Michigan. This is a pretty startling statistic. Those who attended religious services frequently were 15% more likely to achieve an intermediate or ideal cardiovascular health score based on criteria from the American Heart Association. Isn't that interesting? So if you want to live for a long time, sing to your baby, drink tea, and go to church, and you'll be covered. You'll be covered. There's no stopping you at that point. Uh, I want to commend the organized labor movement, not only for giving us the day off yesterday, but for over a century of activism which has benefited all Americans. I'll tell you, if you enjoy... The 40-hour work week, if you enjoy minimum wage instead of getting paid 10 cents an hour like they're getting paid in China, if you enjoy child labor laws, if you enjoy social security, if you enjoy so many things that we take for granted these days, it's because of organized labor and unions. And I know it's very fashionable to dis unions and to villainize unions. And I realize sometimes the, the leadership of unions can be just as corrupt as any politician or as the leadership of any big corporation. I know that. By and large, organized labor has been good for America, period. 
And at the very least, organized labor is responsible for you getting a day off yesterday. So um, if there's ever a day to avoid union bashing, I think it's yesterday and by extension today. I am uh, pro-labor, pro-organized labor, particularly for private sector labor labor unions. Uh, So if you're in a union, as I am, if you're in a union, I say, I commend you. I want to commend as well Romaldo Macedo Rodriguez, a fisherman who miraculously survived 11 days at sea without any food or water by floating in a freezer until he was rescued. This is incredible. This is the kind of thing they make movies about, and I bet you they will make a movie about this guy. Romaldo Macedo Rodriguez, 44 years old, he had no choice but to climb into the freezer after his wooden boat started filling with water in northern Brazil. He was en route to an island off the coast of French Guiana when this scary incident happened. Rodriguez was thankful to be alive, saying, I thought I was going to be attacked by sharks because there are lots of curious fish on the high seas. You know, This was supposed to be a straightforward fishing trip, and this turned into a nightmare when this guy's boat started filling with water. And you know what the most amazing part of this story is? This guy is unable to swim and was not wearing a life jacket. So he climbed into a freezer. And that's where he spent the next 11 days. No food, no water. He lost 10 pounds. And he's deathly afraid of sharks. He wasn't worried about hunger as much as he was worried about thirst and the possibility of getting eaten by sharks. I should think so. And this is incredible. I'm glad this guy survived. But by the way, use this as another opportunity. Learn to swim. If you don't know how to swim, learn to swim. Because it can literally make the difference between life and death. I tell you, one of the things that my wife and I are both committed to with our son is teaching him to swim as soon as possible. We're trying to get him acclimated to the water now. And uh, our friend Danielle... She teaches babies to swim. She has a baby of her own who's actually a very good swimmer, and we're going to have her teach Carmine. And uh, I think this is so important, not just for children, for adults. Learn to swim. If you learn to swim, that completely eliminates a category of dying for you. There are so many stories that I read every year about people that drown because they don't know how to swim. There's no need for that. No need. Uh, I want to commend Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta is the, according to a new study, the very best city for adults age 18 to 25. Oh, yes. The infamous Generation Zers. Jumping into adulthood has been tough of late. And roughly 80% of the people who were forced to scurry back to their parents or their grandparents' home during the pandemic were Generation Z, those born in the late 90s through the early 2000s. And a third of that generation is still living there today. Now inflation is hurting them. Competition for rentals is hurting them. And um, there's this new study from Commercial Cafe, which is a real estate listing service. And it offered some help in finding the city's best suited 
for 18 to 25 years old uh, people, the Generation Zers. And they scored these cities on characteristics important to Generation Zers. Affordability, the percentage of the population that is Generation Z, unemployment rate, internet speed, recreational and dining establishments, number of parks and school enrollment. All sorts of metrics were totaled to rank each city. And lo and behold, Atlanta finished first overall. Surprisingly, Minneapolis was second, interestingly enough, which I would not have predicted. But congratulations to you, Atlanta. And if you're a Generation Zer, if you're looking to flee to a city where you're kind or welcome, consider Atlanta. Because according to this study, that's the city for you. I want to commend Audrey Blanchard. Audrey Blanchard is 19 years old. And uh, she is an Eagle Scout. There are 1,000 female Eagle Scouts in the United States. Well, now, according to Audrey Blanchard, there are 1,001. That's exactly what she said in her ceremony. She she earned her Eagle Scout badge. And uh, this is the only... Audrey is Rochester, Minnesota's only Girl Scout Eagle Badge recipient ever. And this is quite an achievement. It's quite an achievement for anybody to become an Eagle Scout. And this is really, really something. She was, um, her brother became an Eagle Scout as well. I, I got to tell you, this has got to be make her parents really proud. She was a Girl Scout, and she didn't like what she was missing by not being a Boy Scout. She said, I saw what the boys were doing, and I wanted to do more of that. Girl Scouting is more about homebody stuff, sewing, cooking, not the outdoorsy thing that Boy Scouts get to practice. So her mother integrated some of the Boy Scout lessons into the Girl Scout lessons, and Blanchard admitted that out of her Girl Scouts experience, she would have felt prepared for her Eagle Badge challenges as either a boy or a Girl Scout. But um, she has earned 21 merit badges. Very very impressive. Uh, very rare to have a female Eagle Scout. So good for her. And finally, I want to commend Lisa Cormier. Lisa Cormier is a Canadian school teacher who found a fossil that could be 300 million years old. But wait, as the game show contestants say, wait, there's more. This could rewrite The fossil record. This is a discovery which paleontologists are calling the find of a lifetime, and it was found by a Canadian schoolteacher. It could be 300 million years old, and it's probably at least a prehistoric species new to science. At most, once in a hundred years find that could go so far as to rewrite the the fossil record. She was taking a walk down um, southwest Prince Edward Island when she found what looked like a skeleton. There were the head, the ribs, the spine, all pressed into the stone like a fossil. Taking pictures and sending them to her mother sent off a chain reaction that had geologists and paleontologists racing to this location. It's extremely rare. They say that, um, the experts say this could be an early reptile from after their class broke off from amphibians during the Carboniferous period around 300 million years ago. So this is really interesting. 
So I say kudos to you, Lisa Cormier. You've earned yourself a commendation. If you have thoughts on anybody that I've commended, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight, uh, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. quite catchy, actually. I can see why she's so popular. They are calling her, Dua Lipa, that is, the share of our generation. That's what they're calling her. Somebody that is not in agreement with that uh, description is Cher. Cher is not necessarily ready to agree with that. But so be it. Uh, a uh, talented artist, nonetheless. Hey, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, just join the Facebook group, uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And it's also meant to be a platform for people discussing this show. Uh, and uh, you can also give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. So I uh, am back from Atlantic City. My wife and I went there on Sunday into Monday, and uh, we had a great time. I only wish we could have stayed longer and done more things, which is almost always the feeling that I have when uh, when we go to Atlantic City. So um, it was interesting. We go down there, and uh, we're arriving Sunday afternoon, because obviously we were off Monday, so... We figured, well, you know, we'll go and do our thing down there. And as we're on the way down there, my wife, you know, speaking about this gala that we're all going to this week, my wife is coming with me. So she said, I really want to get my nails done. And she's reading that it's black tie and she wants to make sure she gets her nails done before. But she said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. We have all these things on Saturday, all these plans on Saturday. In Atlantic City Sunday and Monday, I have to work Tuesday, and then I have to go to my sister's on Tuesday and help her trap a cat for her prospective move or to take the cat to the vet or something. I don't know. I just said, I don't know when I'm going to get my nails done. So I said, why don't you go and get your nails done in Atlantic City? And she said, oh, okay. And she's looking at these prices for getting nails done in Atlantic City. And a lot of the the salons in the casinos are, according to her, I have no idea what it costs to get your hair, your, your uh, nails done. If you were to say to me it costs $10 to get your nails done at a salon, 
or it costs $100 to get your nails done, I would have no idea which of those is closer to the accurate number. No idea. But she's saying, no, these casino prices for all the salons in there are really just too much. She says, can you ask all of your Atlantic City people for a recommendation on a place to go get nails done? So I do that, and I give her a bunch of places. And then we end up meeting a bunch of my cousins for lunch, and we're making plans with my cousins, and we're making plans for an early dinner. She said, well, uh, uh, it would be a lot easier if I could get my nails done at the Hard Rock, which was the hotel that we're staying at. Big thank you to them for uh, hosting us. We had a great time. And um, she, she she was still a little leery to spend this kind of money on getting your nails done. Lo and behold, we see my mother before we go, and my mother insists, doesn't take no for an answer, insists on giving us money. So I give it to Rachel. So she uses a portion of that to pay to get her nails done. So we are going down there. And sure enough, I'm trying to book this nail appointment for her. And I call the Hard Rock because you can't call the salon directly. You have to call the hotel. So I call the Hard Rock from her phone as we're driving down. And it says, please enter your zip code. I enter our zip code. And the automated response, everything is automated and everything is the word. The automated response is basically... Um, well, I'm sorry, that doesn't match the records we have on file. Okay, so I said, let me call from my phone. And uh, I call, and I'm able to get through. I have to, uh, now, why do they need my zip code to book a thing? I have no idea. But uh, sure enough, they do. And I get through, and I speak to a woman whose English is not the best. And she uh, and I go through this long booking process and they're asking all sorts of questions. Bring your state ID, uh, name, number, email. Um, do, Do you care about the gender of your manicurist and all sorts of stuff? And and my wife's looking at me as I'm on the phone with uh, with this person. And it's a lengthy, lengthy process. And of course, we got disconnected and I had to call back. And start from the very beginning. This is all in the car. I mean, this is something that should be a 90-second process. It took 15 minutes. Not No exaggeration. So we arrive, <laughs> arrive at a restaurant out there that we've never been to, that I've passed 100 times, but it's called the Back Bay Ale House. We arrive at a restaurant out there, and it's packed. And they don't take reservations, but I was meeting my my cousins and my step cousins out there and I had my my second cousin Andrea and my first cousin Natalie and I didn't tell I didn't tell everybody that everyone was coming it was kind of a surprise for everybody which um you know everybody really enjoys so everybody gets to see one another and that was nice but with the kids we're a party of I think 12 so the, no reservations but that's okay we don't mind waiting you can sit and have a drink at the bar and it's, it was nice out, nice weather. It was kind of a convivial, fun atmosphere. And we're waiting out there. And once our whole party's there, we inform them that we're here for lunch, all 12 of us. And <laughs> my cousin Andrea comes over to me and she says, all right, I just spoke to the woman in front to see if they could seat us. <laughs> and the woman told her, and Andrea then told me, that the kitchen is down and they have no food coming out. 
Now, nobody believes Andrea when she says this because there's there's 100 people in this restaurant. There's an outdoor area, an indoor area, and they're bringing out food. I said, no way. That can't be what they said. And Andrea says, you are welcome to go and talk to her and see if she gives you a different answer. So I do that. I go up to the hostess and I have this conversation. And sure enough, the way the, way the uh, hostess says, the kitchen is down. There's nothing that we can do about it. And I said, well, <laughs> and I'm tempted to think, why am I seeing food come out of the kitchen, number one? But I'm also thinking, how does the kitchen just go down in a restaurant? I mean, it's not like flicking a switch. Did they lose power? It doesn't look like they lost power. There's still music playing. They're still making drinks. Did the did the kitchen staff go on strike as a preliminary move on um, – of Labor Day? Why could the kitchen just go down? So um, I said, all right, keep us on your list for text message, and we're going to explore other options. Now, my second step cousin, Scott, has two small children, and they haven't eaten all day. One of them's five, one of them's three. So obviously, my step second cousin-in-law, Jody, is really worried about her kids becoming increasingly temperamental. So it goes, it just so happens there's basically a diner or a luncheonette right near there. It's called the Gilchrist. We end up going there and they can accommodate our party of 12. No problem. And uh, we have a nice leisurely lunch there. And that's that. So sure enough, I still don't understand how all of a sudden a kitchen just goes down and how the waitress can't explain to me a timetable for that kitchen being able to serve food again, but that's where we were. So after uh, so after lunch on Sunday, we go, Rachel goes to get her nails done. Carmine and I both take a nap, both in need of a nap, both nap for about an hour, delightful nap for both of us. And the Hard Rock has these great uh, w- curtains that black out everything. And boom, everything turns pitch black. So Carmine and I take a nap. We reconvene with my wife, and we're going to walk over to uh, Doherty's, to which is at resorts, to have dinner over there. So Rachel tells me that the manicurist that did her nails, that she befriended, tells her that all the booking where they ask for all that information, that's all done in Florida. And that's why they ask all these weird questions. Because Rachel said, do you have any male manicurists here? No. Well, why were they asking me if I care about the gender of the manicure? It's all done in Florida. They have no idea what's going on here. And uh, one of the things that did inure to her benefit, and by extension mine, is it's $65, apparently, to get your nails done in a gel manicure. According to Rachel, now I'm an expert in this, according to Rachel... Usually, if you get a gel manicure, they will take off your existing gel for free, or sometimes they'll charge $10. At the Hard Rock, at the spa there, they charge you $35 to have the gel removed, which is basically, I think, just nail polish removal. They charge you $35 to have the gel removed, and then $65 to get the gel manicure, and then another $13 service fee or something. So because, and Rachel didn't ask them to do this, but the manicurist was nice and, and they did this. Because the, they didn't tell me about this gel removal fee, and it took Rachel kind of by surprise, 
the manicurist talked to the folks there and had the $35 removed. We had dinner at Doherty's, which was delicious, made all the more delicious because my cousin Andrea paid for everybody's dinner, which was like winning the lotto. That was great. And it turns out that that would be the only luck that I would have the entire evening. So after that, I, Andrea and I, I invited all my Atlantic City people to meet me for a drink, but ultimately only one came, uh, David Pena, the owner of Boogie Nights at Tropicana. He met us at the yard at Bally's, which was our first time there. Oh, by the way, I reached out to the folks at Bally's uh, and the nice uh, PR person there, Diane. She said, oh, that's great that you're going to be here. Let me know where you're going to go. I said, okay, well, we're going to go to the yard. And I said, but you don't have to do anything. It's okay. I don't need any special treatment. And she said, no, 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 no. We want to do something for you. We want to host you. Make sure to tell the hostess your name when you sit down. So we go to the yard, Andrea and I, and I tell the hostess, hey, it's it's Frank Morano. And for a moment, it looked like there was a glimmer of recognition. And I said, all right, well, we're just going to do drinks. You know, she said, no food? Yeah, no, just drinks. She said, okay, pick, sit wherever you want and go to the bar and get your drink. So uh, we're sitting there talking to David. They have a band. They have live music. It was a lot of fun. And it's just the three of us, the, David, Andrea, and me, smoking a cigar, having some drinks. And, you know, we did, they didn't give us anything for free, which is fine. We weren't looking for anything for free. But I do think that the person at Bally's that told me that they were going to give us something for free, that she was anticipating this. But that's okay. No big deal. I would never order anything and expect not to pay for it, ever, anyway. So we're hanging out there. And then I said to Andrea, all right, we're here. She wanted to give craps a, a try. We've played craps before, and she's kind of learning the game. We're here. Do you want to walk around here and play a little bit? So we go into Bally's. I lose so much money so quickly. I mean, it was a debacle. Now, I still had a little cash left on me, and I'm not worried too much about this because ultimately I never bring more cash than I'm prepared to lose. And, you know, I, I have been on such a hot streak gambling-wise that I, this was due to end, right? I mean, it was due to turn around. So then I said, all right, right, let's. you want to go back to Hard Rock because that's where Rachel and I were staying. She, I said, you want to walk? Because I love a leisurely boardwalk stroll. Oh, by the way, the boardwalk, when we were walking after dinner, I have never seen the boardwalk in Atlantic City this crowd. This was packed, absolutely packed. You almost couldn't move. There were so many people on the boardwalk. The other thing I noticed, and I've never seen it this bad, is the smell of marijuana was really overpowering. I've smelled marijuana on the uh, boardwalk before, but never did I feel like I was smoking marijuana just by walking around. So that was a bit unpleasant. I did not enjoy the uh, horrible odor of marijuana. I said, do you want to walk back to Hard Rock or do you want to take an Uber? She says, let's Uber. I feel like I can either be up for that walk or I can or I can be up for gambling a little bit. So we go to the Hard Rock and it was packed, packed. Every place was packed. And I think I decided that I'm going to do my gambling in the early morning hours from now on, like 6, 7 a.m. instead of uh, instead of at night at 10, 30, 11 o'clock because everything is just too crowded. Couldn't get near a table. And it, everything is super expensive. The lowest table minimum at the craps tables was $25. So we end up 
We end up playing uh, some three-card poker because that was the only thing that had a couple of empty spots and a decent minimum. I think I won 100 bucks, So I'm thinking, all right, that's the beginning of a comeback. I think Andrea lost like $75. And um, we were going to go cash in our chips and call it a night. The line at the cashier was, I mean, it was 200 feet, 250 feet deep. And it was lengthy. It was not really moving. And she said, okay, I cannot wait on this line. And it was a long line. I didn't blame her. We were both tired. At this point, maybe it's 1 a.m., 1.30 a.m. She said, I can't wait on this line. I can either go and gamble more and lose this money or just give this to you, but I'm not waiting on this line. So we go and play craps. We both lose. So I've now lost the $100 that I won at the, um, you know, at the uh, three-card poker. And she says, all right, I lost. You know, what did I lose? 300 bucks. This is her saying. And ultimately, I'm the big winner because I didn't have to wait in that line again. I didn't have to wait in that cashier line. So I'm prepared to take my cash that's left. I'm still down for the trip, but I'm not destitute, and go and cash my chips and go home. And then this is an hour after Andrea finished, after we observed that line before. I go to that line. The line is still out of control. I said, I'm not waiting in this line. I'm going to go look for something else to play. So I'm trying to look around for a Baccarat table to work my way back to even. And I pass a roulette table. Never a good idea. Sure enough, I uh, I see black is due to come out at roulette. And meanwhile, nothing's ever due to come out. You have the same odds of something coming out. So I put $100 on black. Nope. Red comes out. So I double it. I then put $200 on uh, on black. Nope. Red comes out. I take the rest of my money that I had, $250, all my entire bankroll, put it on black. Ah, black comes out this time. So I, I make $500 back. So I take some of my chips off, and then I take, uh, I think, whatever, $200, and this time I put it on, uh, I, I don't remember what I put it on, black or red, and green came out. So in Atlantic City, the state law is you get half your money back. So I'm playing roulette a bit. I'm doing well, and I'm slowly working my way back to even. I'm almost at the point where I'm $300 away from being even. And sure enough, as always happens with roulette, I go on a uh, losing streak and a horrible slide, lose all my money. And I basically lost all the cash that I brought to gamble with. And it's okay. It's fine. Again, this is cash that I brought intending to lose. And so, uh, and again, I, I can't stress how lucky I've been this year and last year in terms of gambling losses. So it's it's fine. It's par for the course. And I felt bad because the folks at the Hard Rock were kind enough to give me a free room the last couple of times, beautiful room, even on crowded weekends. And I felt bad taking so much money out of there because I felt like I should kind of pay rent on this room. They they give you these rooms with the expectation that you're going to lose at least some money, which I hadn't been doing at all. But I figure, all right, if I'm going to lose this amount of money, I don't want to say how much because I don't want my mom to sneak money into my bank account. But it's not a, a life-changing amount of money at all. But uh, And I also don't like to tell people how much money I win when I win. But So I lost big. And then it's 2.30 uh, in the morning. 
Finally go to bed. My wife, I don't think, was expecting to see me until quarter seven in the morning. But finally go to bed. And then I had agreed on Labor Day to call in to the Bernie and Sid show because it was John Katzmatidis and Andrew Giuliani filling in. So my call-in appearance with them was at 6.50 in the morning. So I kept waking up because I was nervous that I would oversleep past this appearance. So I get up. I see it's about 20 to 7. I get up so I can be loud on the phone and not wake up Rachel and Carmine. So I walk around the hotel at the Hard Rock, and I uh, find an area that doesn't have a lot of people. And meanwhile, I'm looking around. This casino is now empty. And the cashier line is now empty. And I'm thinking, geez, now that I only have $11 to my name, this is the kind of casino that I'd like to play in. But I find a spot to um, do the call. And everywhere you go at the Hard Rock, there's music playing. <laughs> so I said, I don't want John to make fun of me even more. He's probably already going to make fun of me for being in Atlantic City, which he did a little bit. And um, I, I don't want him to make fun of me that I'm at a club or something with some music. So I find a spot that doesn't have so much music, but uh, I do the appearance. I thought it went really well. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I thought they did a great job, by the way, Andrew Giuliani and John Katzmatidis. And I go back to bed, grab Rachel some coffee, because I know she's going to want some coffee to wake up with, go back to bed. And uh, that was pretty much it. We went to lunch. We, uh, we had lunch at the Hard Rock Buffet. I got to say, I was not impressed with the buffet at the Hard Rock. $35, and we both thought the food was only mediocre. And I, maybe I had higher expectations because people were writing about it on social media and stuff. But um, I thought it was just okay for uh, for the price. The Borgata Buffet, I thought, was much better. We didn't go to that on this trip, but previously. I always like to eat outside of the casinos. But what happened was we were walking on the boardwalk, and it was so hot that uh, both Rachel and Carmine were having a tough time in the heat. I could walk all 2.4 miles of that boardwalk all day long, but the heat was very tough on her. So we walked to um, the showboat to see the new Lucky Snake Arcade. We walked around, saw the new go-kart test track and some of the other fun games they have, and then um, I picked up one of those world's greatest frozen daiquiris at a daiquiri, and uh, we had lunch and came home. So that was our trip. It was a lot of fun. I was glad I got to see some family. Got glad I got to see my friend David Pena. Uh, but glad I got to eat at Doherty's. Even happier that Andrea picked up the tab for us eating at Doherty's. But gambling-wise, this trip was a big, big loser. I heard Curtis mention that uh, I had, was winning $10,000 or something at Baccarat. I can assure you that that absolutely was not the case. But... That is the incredible true story of our trip to Atlantic City. Uh, I don't know when we'll get to go again. I think I'm going in October for uh, Harry Hurley's charity function out there, which I always try and get to. Uh, but uh, I don't know that we have plans to go as a family again anytime soon, which is fine because I have to rebuild my bankroll now. So that's that. All right. I'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is uh, Patrick Hernandez, Born to be Alive. This is exactly the kind of music that you'll hear at Boogie Nights if you ever go visit Boogie Nights. A uh, big thank you again to David Pena, who was kind enough to meet us. We had a cigar and uh, shared a drink uh, along with Andrea. He was, uh, he was, it was great fun to see him, and uh, I'm glad he's doing well. Hey, here's a question. Uh, you ever play Name That Tune? Right? Um, you know the premise, right? Where you hear a bit of a song and you try and guess what the tune is. Okay. Um, Kenneth, I want you to listen to this. Listen to what I'm about to whistle and tell me what this is. Ready? What is it? Twinkle, twinkle, little star. That is absolutely incorrect. But it's also maybe correct. So, interesting thing. There's all these stories about songs that steal other songs' melodies. You know, it happened with that Robin Thicke song, and uh, the Marvin Gaye song. It happens all the time. It was always allegations of Under Pressure and the Vanilla Ice song. I mean, there's so many similarities, right, with different songs. And I remember my, my wife sings to Carmine every day. And we were watching on CBS Sunday Morning a segment about these songs that are stolen from one another. And she sings to Carmine. I'm not going to do the song because I can't do it justice. But she sings to Carmine in the melody of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Uh, she, uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. She sings Carmine, Carmine, Little Carm. And she changes the lyrics and makes it her own. And he seems to respond to it. So I'm in our hotel room yesterday with Carmine. I'm singing him the alphabet. You know the alphabet? Because I want him to learn to read, right? So I'm singing him A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so uh, my wife says to me, yeah, it looks like he recognizes that tune because that's the tune that I sing to him at night. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, you told me when we saw that CBS Sunday morning segment a couple of weeks ago, I didn't even know if she remembered it. I said, you told me you were using the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Lo and behold, she blows my mind. She says, the melody for the ABCs and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star are the same thing. And sure enough, we both start singing it together. She swings Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I sing the ABCs. And she's right. It is the same. For instance, this is a little bit of the ABCs. Okay, it, you can't, now that I said that, can't you tell that it's the same? This is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. See, that's the ABC song. It's nuts. So, can we play both simultaneously? Do we have that ability, Mr. Matt plays, both the ABCs and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? Let me hear both together.
Uh, so uh, that was uh, that blew my mind. And apparently, bo- both of these songs. Uh, did everyone know this? Were you aware of this, Matt Blaze? I was. You were. Were you? Kenneth wasn't. Um, so I said maybe this is something that I knew. I don't know when I was six, but that I have forgotten. I don't know that most people know this. So sure enough, I did some research, and they are both derivative of a French melody from the 18th century, a children's melody called Avoue de Rage Maman. And not only that, but you know what else is from that same melody? Ba Ba Black Sheep. Ba Ba Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Can you hear it? The ABCs. They're all. Every children's song is derivative of this rhymes for the nursery. Who, this uh, this French nursery rhyme. Whoever came up with this has got to be the richest Frenchman in history. You know the money he's probably making in royalties? Man. Jeez. I don't know if most people know that. Because I had no idea. My mind, blown. Absolutely blown. All right. Until next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. A lot of interesting things uh, going on. We're trying to get to as much of it as we can this hour. We may even spin the wheel of topics. But, by the way, so I do wonder how widely this Twinkle Twinkle Little Star ABC's situation is. Matt Blaze, who I think is a good barometer of what the average person knows, he was aware of it. I must have known this. But I clearly had forgotten it. Uh, I did not. I reacted with surprise when my wife informed me of this. And people are messaging me saying, I thought everybody knew this. Apparently, Kenneth and I might be the only people that did not know this. Because even Alex Barnard uh, messaged me that he knew this. But then he went on to add, but I have perfect pitch. So what kind of thing is that to say? (laughs) That is really something. I mean, Chris from the Catskills, you know, I'm a like that uh, Exactly, right. He and John from Brooklyn, they're at their convention of... John from Brooklyn. Me, me, me. I was in high school in Brown <laughs> University. Gotta work that in. I mean, but of course, when you listen to music like this, of course this kind of person has perfect pitch.
good soldier. And evil lurks behind the scenes. How could I have doubted that he would have Some perfect sword, This is the new Alex Barnard song. Um, it's called uh, Crime screen. Streaming on the Internet. Live stream crimes by uh, lesbian dance theory. Actually, he's got some other names for his band. Crime Stoppers, Crime Stealers, Face Stealers. Yeah, people don't know. This is actually the same melody as Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Can't, can't you, can't you hear it? Twinkle Twinkle. Right, see, I hear it. Same thing. Perfect pitch. More like music that you need to take antidepressants to. You better call your uh, all right, that's enough. But people can download that on iTunes. I believe it's free. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, and you know what? Alex Barnard was recognized by no less an authority than Dominic Carter yesterday for his musical ability. His name is Alex Bernard. And Alex Bernard, Bernard is a producer... For WABC, senior producer, senior, basically an executive producer, and he's working on this show all day long before I even think about the show, figuring out ways to make it better for you, our listening audience. So the other night I get off the air and I'm on my way home and Alex is starting the next show, the Frank Morano show, and he says, Dominic, I want you to listen to something. I'm like, sure, Alex, what's up? And he goes, poor guy, just I worked the whole a, day. A heavy metal song, right? Gets heckled and by he Alex. He goes, I don't know if you're into heavy metal, but he goes, I have a heavy metal song on Spotify. <laughs> now, I have to be honest with you folks. I don't know how to work Spotify. I guess I'm old school like that, old generation. And so he sent me the link. And I'm, I'm about to get in the elevator to go downstairs to start the process <laughs> to go home. To leave the and I listened to it. And I liked it. And I'm really proud of him because he's pursuing the things that he wants to do in life. And what? And uh, there you go. You can see this is kind of Dominic's jam. Alex Bernard, senior producer. Um. Well, I, in all seriousness, we're glad Alex has perfect pitch and uh, and that he's set the death metal world by on fire with this um, music song. Hey, a lot of people downloading the song, Alex? Well, first of all, when did this turn into like a, a ragging on me thing? You know, I make one comment that, you know... Maybe it was a little conceited, but this is going to be entrance music from now on. That's right. That's right. Hey, it's got to. It it's be not a bad. Th- it's actually not bad as entrance music. No, it's very good for hey, entrance yeah. music. It's it's a great endorsement for me. <laughs> you know, um, actually, I was I was pleased to find out that Kickflip was among the people that has yeah. Purchased he's the a song. regular emailer. He yeah. likes to keep his identity anonymous, though, so we'll, right. we won't out him. But um, you know what you should do? You should try and make a deal. Like, even if you have to pay them one of these big closers in baseball so that they'll come out to this to this song, like uh, Enter Sandman with Mariano Rivera. Yeah, why you not? Know, they paid. Metallica, I'm sure, paid Mariano Rivera and Billy Wagner to use that song. Mm. You could pay Edwin Diaz. No, right? I, well, okay. When... This is, see, this shows how little I know about exactly when... 
Mariano Rivera's uh, walkout music was Enter Sandman, but I mean, like, what years? Are there I'd say about? from maybe 1998 to you know 20, there, 2014. Yeah, there's no shot that uh, Metallica paid him to no. to use it. The, well, and the MLB definitely paid Metallica to use. Well, what about paying uh, another? They were pitcher. already so popular. By, well, by what about point. paying another pitcher? Maybe. Uh, Adam Ottavino, or I don't know, oh, somebody I would, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You right. know, okay. I'd, I'd pay somebody to, to there you go. play that song. All right. Uh, if people want to reach you to negotiate the uh, terms of this, how can they do that? Uh, James.Barnard at WABCRadio.com. James.Barnard yeah. to reach no, Al- Another useless fact about me. You know? Alex Bernard. Well, you, you actually brought that up the I first did, time, yes. the first week I ever worked for yeah, you. Yeah, little did I know I was opening a hornet's nest. <laughs> little did I know. But uh, exactly. no, that's great. Um, that's great. Well, I'm, are a lot of people downloading it, though? Yeah, I I would, from what I've seen of the stats from yesterday or so, I've gotten, you know, I mean, it's not like thousands or hundreds or anything yet, but it's... But tens. Right. It's getting there. It's so, um, it's a number I'm happy with. Good. It's okay. at least more than one. All right. <laughs> so, and again, uh, tell people how to download it if they want. Uh, live streamed crimes on Spotify, iTunes, uh, Google Play, anything you uh, nice. You know, you stream on. The name of the band is Face Stealer. Okay. All right. I'll tell you, if you find that disturbing, chances are pretty good that you will find the new motion picture um, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, disturbing. This is, uh, I'm not joking about this. None of what I say here is a joke. Winnie the Pooh, beloved children's character, you know, he likes honey. He is now a character in this upcoming British independent slasher film. And it is a horror, it's called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. And I was telling my sister, I saw her Saturday. We were at my dad's on Saturday. And I saw her, she had a Winnie the Pooh shirt on. And I started telling her about this Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Um, The tagline is, this ain't no bedtime story. It's a new horror movie all about Winnie the Pooh. It's a horror retelling of the book Winnie the Pooh. And it follows Winnie the Pooh and Piglet as they become bloodthirsty murderers when Christopher Robin abandons them for college. So... This uh, this has gotten mixed reactions from people. A lot of people unhappy that they're taking this beloved children's icon and making him a bloodthirsty murderer. And it is a weird-looking Winnie the Pooh. He, it's a live-action film, so he's kind of anthropomorphic. He's very weird-looking. It doesn't look like the Winnie the Pooh that you're probably familiar with, the version from the books or the animated series. He's a weird-looking Winnie the Pooh, and he's scary. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. If you haven't seen the trailer, here's a little bit of it. You know, you're the first person I've ever shown this place to. Why am I so special? Because soon we'll be Christopher and Mary Robin. We should be close now. We're not going to find them. We will. Pooh, Piglet, Eeyore. We were friends for many years and they're out there. Christopher, we need to leave. Now. I really need to find out what's happening here, okay?
all. And the GTRs are cool. We need to go! There's... The flower's dead. There's someone else outside. What was that? Why are you doing this, please? I would have never left that tell you it does look pretty scary uh a lot of it is visual uh there's certain things that you can't tell with us playing it on the radio uh for instance one of the things they pass is eeyore's grave there's a gravestone for eeyore the you know depressed donkey or right donkey right eeyore and you can't see that and you can't see some of the girls that are being attacked by Winnie the Pooh and by Piglet. I'm going to link to the trailer uh, on my Facebook page, but uh, viewer discretion is advised. But if you're curious to see the visuals from this trailer, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. I got to tell you, I think this is great. I, it does look kind of campy and I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's silly. I mean, look, film with Winnie the Pooh killing a bunch of people. How could it not be silly? But, uh, The whole reason they're able to do this is because Winnie the Pooh entered the public domain in January. You have a finite amount of time for a fictional character or for anything, really, to be copyrighted. And then it enters the public domain. And I always think this is so neat. And I love whenever iconic characters enter the public domain because there's so much you can do with them. Sometimes there's accidental reasons that things enter the public domain. For instance, one of the Bob Hope Bing Crosby films, that's in the public domain, so anybody can write that. Anybody can reproduce that with no problem, and you don't have to pay anybody. But um, Winnie the Pooh entered the public domain January of 2022, so now anybody can make any sort of Winnie the Pooh film they want as long as it's not characters that are still copywritten. For instance... You know who you won't see in this picture? Tigger. Uh, because Tigger is still copy, uh, under copyright since he came a little later. But Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore, and Piglet, they're covered in the first Winnie the Pooh book. So they're all now public domain. So you could make your own Winnie the Pooh film, film as, uh, I, which I think is great. Just don't include Tigger in it because uh, then you'll get in trouble. If anything, maybe you just call him the T-word. But... Um, in January, I was looking in January of 2023 to see who was entering the public domain. And it's interesting. There are some other interesting characters entering the public domain in 2023. You, Goodnight Moon, which is an iconic children's story, that is entering the public domain in 2023. In 2024, Popeye. Um, in 2024, also, Mickey Mouse. Can you imagine how crazy Mickey Mouse is going to, how crazy Disney is going to go once Mickey Mouse is in the public domain? But you got to be careful because the Mickey Mouse that is entering the public domain in 2024 is the Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie. So it can only depict him as he's depicted in Steamboat Willie. 
no gloves, um, uh, black and white. You know, it's got to be careful. Popeye entering the public domain in 2024, which is really cool. Think of all the creative things you could do with Popeye. You could do a horror movie about Popeye or a comedy or a, a pornographic film about Popeye. I think this is uh, great. I love that. Now, coming and meanwhile, a lot of the people that own these existing copyrights, they are panicked and they're trying to get people to extend these copyrights as saying, look, it's not right. You know, Bugs Bunny is going to be in the public domain in 2035. It's not right to have these characters shown in such a way. Why should Bugs Bunny be in a pornographic film? He was never meant, uh, never intended to be in pornography, never intended to be in horror, never intended to be in anything like that. But sure enough, Tom and Jerry are coming in 2035. Batman in 2034. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, 2032. Porky Pig, 2030. Um, Buck Rogers is January 1st. So let's, you know, I'd love to collaborate with something, with someone on this. Maybe we can make a new Buck Rogers picture. So if I could do something, maybe I could do a a narration. Maybe we can do our own version of Buck Rogers. We'll call it Buck Rogers. Ready for this? Here's my Frank Morano creative juices flowing. Buck Rogers in the 35th century, right, instead of the 25th. Buck Rogers in the 35th century. How about that? What I'm looking for, by the way, in terms of a collaborative partnership, if anybody's thinking of taking me up on this, I am looking for something that requires the minimum amount of time but will del- and the minimum amount of work, but will deliver the maximum amount of money and fame. That's what I'm looking for. So if you are interested in that kind of a partnership, email me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. For instance, what if Goodnight Moon is going to be coming out in the public domain in January? So what if I published my own version of Goodnight Moon where I do an introduction, the Frank Morano introduction to Goodnight Moon, and then just sell the book as it is in the public domain? I think people would buy it, right? Or maybe I'll have my son Carmine do his own introduction. He'll write the forward to the new public domain version of Good Night Moon. Imagine that. He could be a published author at, um, at, uh, at uh, one, right? We'll just we'll record him. This is what we're going to do. This is, I'm working this out on the air here. We'll record just his random sounds, right? And hopefully by then he'll have words and stuff. And then we'll, we'll get a transcription software, and we'll transcribe this, or wherever he is by January, We'll transcribe this as the forward to Goodnight Moon. All right? He could be a public, published author before he could even read. I like this idea. I'm going to pursue it. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. Uh, howdy. Uh, shout out to Kent. Um and Dominic Carter was great. I happen to have my own only uh, T-shirt, Cortland, wearing that now. So let's go to Red Dragons. Very <laughs> nice. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, Frank. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, oh, buddy of mine, uh, retired from Atlantic City, Caesars. Years ago, when I went down there, I'd go to Blackjack. 
Hmm. I sit at the hot, the hot corner, third base, the last uh, seat before the dealer. And, uh, you know, it got to the point, it's, it's a roller coaster ride. You know, whatever gambling you want to do, you know, if your splits are working and your doubles and this and that. But uh, I even saw the owner, the previous owner of the Eagles, uh, he was playing every spot on the blackjack table, uh, 10, 15,000 a spot. And he, he literally, you know, was out of his mind. He lost everything. He lost everything. Ooh. So, oh, yeah. And I'm just uh, giving a shout out to people. You know, if you're going to get involved and, and um, you know, just, just be aware, you know, uh, the old saying I said to friends for years, hey, you know what? The casinos look the way they look because of uh, not, not the players winning. And uh, uh, always think about this. You know, you try to get even and you get even worse. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, right. Uh, Frank, a great show. I want to finish with this. I hope to uh, speak to John Castro-Matides one day because my dad uh, uh, passed away uh, six years ago, 88, Carmen, and a lot of people called him Carmine. He spent 52 years um, uh, manager, district manager at the old Grand Union supermarkets. Yeah. And uh, he had a store in, in Garden City. And who was the customer? Greg Kelly, Swather Ray, uh, even Dave DeBusher. Uh, but dad, uh, you know, if I speak to John Cassimatides, like I mentioned to Ken, uh, I have to take a couple of deep breaths because because I have a t- <clears throat> couple of tears in my eyes, you know. Um, uh, all right, Frank, uh, all the best. And um, that's why I tuned into your show. You got the mojo. Where's my drumsticks? Where's my drumsticks? <laughs> Thank right. you. Thank you very much, uh, Mike. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Two two. Mike is in New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. A twinkle, twinkle, little star was composed by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Yeah, well, it was actually um, one version of that adaptation was by um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but according to Henri Irene Moreau, the origin of the melody is an anonymous pastoral song dating from 1740. Uh, so that would not have been the that would not have been the Mozart version because Mozart wasn't even born until 1756. Thank you, Mike. 800-848-9222. Uh, nah, the choice is E Frank or a, a commercial. I think commercial wins. All right. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to give you an opportunity to get uh, to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that, if you have what it takes to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And you can play the $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Frank Morano. 
Betty Lou's getting out tonight. Certainly, if Bob Seger has its way. Am I right? All right. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. It is time for us to try and give away $1,000. Let us say hello to Mark in New Haven. Hello, Mark. Hello, Frank. All right, Mark. Uh, you're familiar with the contest, I assume. Yep. Okay, Mark. So uh, timer will begin after I ask you the first question. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I love the enthusiasm. I love the enthusiasm. Okay. What holiday was yesterday? Labor Day. What does the G in LGBT stand for? Gay. What New Jersey city did I visit this past weekend? Atlantic City. What are the only two countries to share a land border with the United States? Mexico and Canada. Who is Ben Affleck married to? J-Lo. What's the name of NASA's moon-orbiting mission, which was slated to launch Saturday? Oh, shoot. Um... Apollo's sister, I can't think of it. <laughs> it does start with an A. Uh, yeah, I can't think of it. All right, it was Artemis. Artemis. Right. Artemis. All right, you did well. You got up to question six. I'm going to put you on hold, give Kenneth your information, and uh, we'll send you a consolation prize of some, some sort. Yeah, Artemis. We've been We've been covering that a lot. I feel like if you listen to this show, you should get Artemis, but sometimes you just can't think of it. You just you just can't think of the answer. So be it. Um, that was uh, it was not a bad not a bad thing. Hey, uh, speaking of space and things of that nature, there's an astronomer who thinks that alien technology could be on the ocean floor. You see, eight years ago, a meteor believed to have been two feet long entered Earth's atmosphere at more than 100,000 miles an hour before exploding into tiny, hot fragments and falling into the South Pacific Ocean. So some scientists believe it came from another star system, which would make it the first known interstellar object of its size to impact Earth. Well, now, Professor Avi Loeb, who's been a guest on this show, very smart guy, very controversial guy, but he's with Harvard, a little, little institution you might have, might have heard of called Harvard, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He's planning an expedition to retrieve the fragments of the meteor from the ocean floor. By analyzing the debris, he's hoping to determine the object's origin, even going so far as to make the extraordinary suggestion that it could be a technological object created by Aliens. It's a Harvard astrophysicist, okay? Not some crazy late-night radio person. Uh, Some astronomers are wary of his claims. They're citing a lack of data on the object and insufficient evidence to support his conjecture. So the object that Loeb is searching for was detected in 2014 by a network of satellites used to monitor the skies for potentially dangerous asteroids. So using data published by NASA, Loeb and Amir Siraj 
then a Harvard University undergrad, first suggested the object came from outside our solar system in 2019. Loeb quoted, It moved very fast, roughly 40 kilometers per second when it exploded in the lower atmosphere. And from that, we can infer that it was moving much too fast to be bound to the sun. So Loeb and Siraj submitted a paper making their case, making their case to a peer-reviewed astronomy journal. The paper was rejected because their data was incomplete. So some of the data relied on observations from classified missile detection systems, making Loeb and Siraj's estimates of the velocity of this object impossible for viewers to verify. But in April, a memo published by U.S. Space Command seemed to confirm that the object came from outside the star system. So now, Avi Loeb is launching a 1.5 million-dollar, privately funded expedition to retrieve pieces of the meteor from the ocean floor. Based on the data from the Defense Department, Loeb has focused his search to an area of nearly 40 miles. This is what Loeb told NPR. It's just like mowing the lawn. We're planning to use a sled with a magnet that will scoop a very thin layer off the top of the muck. And he says that testing the composition of the object could determine if it resembles those found in our solar system. I think it's pretty exciting. Uh, As I mentioned, other astronomers are very skeptical. They dismiss the idea of the object being technological, saying that there are far simpler and far more likely natural explanations. So we'll see what happens. I think it's uh, pretty interesting to watch. I'm very impressed with Avi Loeb. I think I give him a lot of credit for thinking outside the box and being willing to speak out on issues like this, knowing what a pariah this is likely to make him in the academic community. All right, 800-848-9222. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Thank you, Larry. Uh, e. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes, uh, good uh, morning, Frank. I'm enjoying your show, as usual, and uh, I am very impressed by everything you said in regards to your sacrifice out there in Atlantic City. Too bad, you know, sometimes I do go there. But, you know, I'm going to tell you what I call, I'm calling about. It's three points. Number one. Okay, you had a guest previously uh, on one of your shows. She was a doctor that talked about polio and childhood medicine. Well, you know, guess what? She's a a four-time neighbor of mine. You might not know what four-time is that she moved in and out of my building. I used to steal her medical books. Dr. Uh, Jacobonis, I think her name is. Well, that's her marriage name, but she... You know, she would give me a hard time when I was a child because she would play with me and she would say, hey, come over here. Where are you stealing my medical books? I'm going to fail my uh, my uh, medical board. But, you know, I was impressed several months ago when she was talking about the polio and childhood uh, vaccines. I mean, you know, that's a very big problem now. Uh, they're discovering that polio is making a comeback and I and I listened to what she was saying that evening, and and basically she told the truth. She, her perspective, what she writes in her journals, is pretty much uh, on the dot. Uh, second point is that right now you had a guest. He was talking. Uh, he was in the hospice. Uh, I believe that you know 
I have a friend that's in the hospice right now, and that's the six-month rule. They don't allow you to leave unless you can function again. You know, he, your guest was talking about uh, buying a wagon, dying and going to heaven. Like, every person has a different definition of what the word dying and death is. I would say that, you know, if you tell someone I'm going to kick the can, they're going to ask you, what does that mean? I usually, when uh, someone says, you know, do you believe in God? I usually tell them, well, someday we're going to have to pass on. I usually use the word pass on rather than say, I'm going to buy the sky or I'm going to go to hell. You know, I don't use those terms. That that, that changes the perspective on what you can do for others in the future. You're actually uh, tormenting them and making them think negatively. Third point, Frank, is that, you know, you had a guest. I don't think he was a guest. Uh, You might say caller. You saw on TV recently, in the last few days, that they were talking about Bed Bath & Beyond CEO um, uh, Gustav Armand. I was very, very disappointed when uh, the gentleman said he was uh, Charles Finch. You know, because Char- Charlie Finch has said he was a the nephew of a World War One veteran. I mean, I don't understand why the the gentleman had any reason to commit suicide. Yeah, well, that's thank you, E. Frank, uh, for that very comprehensive phone call. That is the thing with uh, committing suicide. Uh, very rarely do you get. Uh, very rarely is it something that's easily explainable. Clearly, he was suffering. And dealing with a, a great deal of stress that uh, that we can't imagine. So uh, thank you there. Uh, Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yes. Yeah, so, hi, Frank. Sorry about that. I'm glad this guy got to go before me anyway. Yeah. Because I want to talk about boxing in the, in, in the uh, context of the guy that was talking about uh, fixing. Because he didn't mention boxing. And I've always felt that Muhammad Ali was always given uh, the benefit of every fight, starting with, with uh, Sonny Liston. With that phantom punch that I watched a hundred times at least uh, over, and uh, I believe Liston was in a position to uh, be to throw the fight because he couldn't beat Ali after the first fight. They saw he couldn't beat Ali, and the guy was so strong that even though that was a punch that connected, I saw his head snap back. It was not it was not big enough to keep him down, and it showed. And also when when he fought uh, when he fought what's his name uh, the Burger guy Foreman. Uh, in, in, in Zaire in 1974, that was a quick count. Foreman was up at the count of eight. It wasn't a 10 count. It was an eight count, and Foreman was clearly up, and they called the fight. That could have been one of the greatest fights of all time, but they were afraid that Ali could, was not going to be able to finish him off because he had a lucky flurry, if you want to ask me. But that would have been the greatest opportunity that, for Ali to really show who he was, and they denied it. So that's that's what I wanted to say. I wanted to know your opinion about that. About that. Well, you know, it's funny. I had not heard the theory about the, uh, the rumble in the jungle being fixed. I I have followed, and I recently watched a documentary about that Liston-Ali front, and I actually do think there's a strong likelihood that that Sonny Liston fight was fixed. I think Sonny Liston got paid uh, or got threatened by some underworld figures that he was in league with at the time, and he threw that fight. And uh, I think... um, I don't know that Ali was aware of this. I don't know that the official was aware of this, but uh, I think Sonny Liston 
through that fight. Now, uh, it, I think the big question for me, it's, it's never been a question to me, is are there boxing matches or sporting events that are fixed? And thanks for the call, Larry. The question for me is, how prevalent is it? The way Brian Tuohy, and if you don't know what we're talking about, you got to listen to the first hour of the show, uh, just search for The Other Side of Midnight on uh, any podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. The, what Brian Tuohy seems to be suggesting is that sporting events being fixed is much more prevalent than we realize. But that Liston fight, I agree with you, Larry. I'm not there on the George Foreman thing. No, not there. Uh, but uh, I don't have to be. Hey, so as you know, my wife and I have been watching this uh, series, Only Murders in the Building. And... On the show, so much of the show takes place in this building. It's a fictional building called the Arconia. And the Arconia is so prominent. We're in the second season now, and we're working our way through the second season. But it's so prominent, this building, and it's so integral to a lot of the plot points on the show that it's almost like the building is a character in and of itself, the Arconia. As I mentioned, the Arconia is fictional, but... It's based on some real New York buildings. The exterior is based on, uh, according to the New York Times, uh, the exterior is based on the Belnord, which is on the, uh, I believe it's the Upper West Side. And the interior is shot. And it's funny because I thought this building looked familiar. The interior is shot at the Apthorpe building. That's where the show is filmed. The Apthorpe building is a condominium complex that I've been to many times that stretches from Broadway from 78th Street to 79th Street. It's a historic building that was built in the 1900s. And I used to go there all the time to visit Barry Farber. Barry Farber lived there for years. He lived there from the time he moved to New York, I think in the 50s, all the way until maybe a year before he died. So 2019 or so, 2018 maybe. Because it's really a beautiful building. And it's had a lot of interesting residents uh, there at the time. Babe Ruth lived there. Angelina Jolie lived there. Um... Actually, no, I think there's see there's another building that they uh, that they use for part of it. That's where Babe Ruth lived. That's the Ansonia. So there are three buildings that are the real life basis for the Anconia. You have the uh, Ars- the Ansonia, you have the Apthorpe building, which is where the interiors are shot, which is the one I'm familiar with. and then you have the one where the exteriors are fil- are filmed. That is the the Bell Nord. Uh, all these buildings have really interesting histories. So I think, um, and by the way, I read this article this weekend that this series is now so popular that it has inspired all these real life tours. The all these people are actually going to visit the real life locations, not only these buildings but other locations that they visit on the show. And uh, it's kind of cool. I'm all for adding one more element to uh, New York tourism. So I think that's neat. 
800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's, uh, but it was, it was kind of fun that uh, I had thought that that building reminded me of Barry Farber's building. And sure enough, it was indeed Barry Farber's building. All right. Uh, let's see. Do we have time to do this now? Um, I'm wondering if we should try and go through. the. You know what? Well, if we have to do mail twice this week, we will because we have a lot of snail mail. But we also have a lot of uh, of email as well. So if we have to do it twice, so be it. Uh, let us go through some of the correspondence and this week's. Letters. Oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out. Those letters. I love those letters. Let's start with email, particularly the email that has come in reverse chronological order. This is from Linda. Subject, wonderful interview tonight with Malachi. Hi, Frank. Absolutely wonderful interview. I truly enjoyed your prior interview with this truly beautiful man, a comedic genius, and the interview tonight definitely did not disappoint. Malachi is truly an incredible man. His wisdom is nothing but admirable. I'm so glad that you're planning to have him on the show again. Your questions were right on target and very appropriate. Also, the compassion and respect that you showed Malachi, well-deserved, was quite beautiful. Looking forward to your next Malachi interview. Uh, take care and stay well. That's awfully nice. Isaac writing a blast from the past. Frank, I was glad I was able to hear the words of wisdom from the great Malachi McCourt while he's still here with us. A true treasure. Looking forward to the November 10th interview. Great stuff. Thanks, Isaac. Uh, This is from David. Uh, This is from over the weekend. Hi, Frank. I felt that there is a problem with the way ranked choice voting is being done. This resulted in the Democrat winning the Alaskan congressional seat. The rule has to be that if no one gets 50 percent of the votes cast, then a runoff has to be held. In the Alaska election, at least 188,000 votes were cast and the Democrat won with about, with about 91,000 votes, or about 48% of the total votes cast. When around 5% of the votes cast are not counted under this method, and we award victory to the one who only got 48% of the votes cast, the will of the majority of the voters was not done. If the New York City Community Board, in the New York City Community Boards, you must get over 50% to get elected. If you don't meet that threshold, even if you get the plurality of votes counted, you're not elected to the office. Thank you for your time, David. First of all, David, you are misinformed about New York City community boards. Community boards in New York City are not elected. They are appointed by the city council member and the borough president. I say this as someone that served on the community board for years. I was appointed to that position. And the community board that I served on, you know what his, his name is? The chairman? The community board chairman, Frank Morano. No relation, but we are friends. He's a great guy. Uh, I am not for this Alaska system. Uh, I think it's convoluted. I think it's bizarre. I think the fact that they go from the first round, uh, first of all, with ranked choice voting, there should not be multiple rounds of voting. It'd be one round of voting. That's the key benefit is you save the cost of a second election. We used to have um, sort of ranked choice voting when we had proportional representation electing the New York City Council in the 30s, and when New York City had elected school boards up until about 2003, we had proportional representation. I think both of those are 
very, very positive plans. That's the kind of system that I'd like to see. I also like ranked choice voting the way it works in New York City in special elections. Uh, That's how it should work. I know some other people have been critical of the fact that Eric Adams was uh, elected through ranked choice voting last year. The bottom line is Eric Adams would have been elected anyway because he had the most first choice votes anyway. I, um, I'd have to check your math on this Alaska, Alaska system. Again, I'm not for the Alaska system. I think it's crazy. I, the problem with the Alaska system that I have is because it's confusing to voters. All right, we have one system of voting for the first round and then the next system of voting for the second round. No, it should just be one system. Rank your choices and that's it. And that will help the voters avoid not ranking anybody. I haven't checked your math here, David. But if the numbers that you cite are correct that 5% of the votes were not counted. That's because voters that voted for the third-place candidate didn't rank their choice, their second choice. That's the thing, is it is more Democratic as long as everybody ranks their choice. We may revisit this again tomorrow. Uh, This is from an email from Jeff in North Carolina. Uh, Subject, comments on Christ. Frank, dismayed. At how dismissive you were about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the other night in your comments, particularly how it was hard to get a fix on him as he spoke mainly in parables, as if he was just another interesting dude in history. Frank, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Frank, I mean, excuse me, Jeff, that's the good thing about the Lord, is he will have mercy on my soul, because Jesus is a pretty forgiving guy. Second, the question was not about worshiping anyone. The question is about having dinner and some drinks with a historical figure. And the choice was not, who do you want to worship? The choice was, who do you want to have dinner and drinks with? And what I said, and I stand stand by this, is that Jesus is a pretty frustrating dinner companion. Okay? You read these quotes. First of all, uh, you read these quotes from The Last Supper, and it's a lot of talking in circles. And call me crazy, I don't want to put in that much effort into my dinner conversation. I want a pleasant dinner conversation. Like a James Garfield or a Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill. Um, I stand by my comments, and I'm sorry if they were not up to snuff, and I'm glad that Jesus is more forgiving than you are, Jeff. Uh, This is an unsigned email. Subject, Mark Sloboda is an apologist, a blatantly pro-Kremlin apologist. Why waste important air broadcast time on this Goebbels-like ministry of propaganda mouthpiece for Putin? Equivalent today to Adolf... Oh, boy, this is way too long. I'm not going to read this whole thing. But basically, it lambasts me for having Mark Sloboda on Friday. Bottom line, I want to have as many diverse points of view on this program as possible. And I want to offer as many alternative points of view, not just on Russia, not just on ranked choice voting, not just on conspiracies, but on everything. If there's a narrative that is being told in the rest of the world, I want to show the alternative view. And Mark Sloboda was a means to doing that. This is the last one I'll read, and then we'll get to 15 seconds of fame. This is unsigned. Uh, Frank, listening to that horrible racket called Song by some youthful fools, talking about the Alex Barnard song. Oh, subject, we just turned off your station. Frank, listening to that horrible racket called Song 
by some youthful fools would cause a large number of listeners leaving the show to never return. We had to turn off your station for the night due to that horror of a noise called music. However, I was reminded you were going to have a guest about Russia, Ukraine. So I don't know if that means he came back or not. So whatever the case may be. Not everybody a fan of Alex Barnard's music, but Dominic Carter and I are. Because, as Alex Barnard will tell you, he's got perfect pitch. 800-848-9222. We'll do 15 yes, seconds correct. of fame momentarily. And who knows, a little bit later this week, we had a lot of snail mail here. A little bit later this week, uh, we will go through your written correspondence on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. text message here from my friend Tommy, who uh, actually serves on the community board. He's a vice chairman of the community board. And he writes uh, that uh, he might be referring to elections of officers within the community board. The guy that wrote me that uh, ranked choice voting email. Could be, but um, the community boards themselves make their rules in terms of uh, how the elections take place and everything like that. But... um, the, the point is, so what, right? I, I still don't think that that makes the Alaska-style system a good one, and I don't think the failures of the Alaska system make ranked choice voting a poor choice. There's a reason uh, that, uh, look, the, the, I don't want to get into a ranked choice voting discussion now. We'll save that for tomorrow. We have, we'll, This is your opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. All right, 800-848-9222. It is time for... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Joe is on Kankama. Hey, Frank, I hope you had a great weekend. A uh, big shout out to my two kids on their first day uh, back to school. And also, shout out to Frankie from Glendale. Have a good night, Frank. Ivan in Woodhaven. The second Sphinx Holmes fight. Holmes won every round easy. They gave the decision to Spinks. Say what you want about Foreman Ali. Foreman definitely beat the count. Just watch it. Frankie and Glendale. Hey, welcome back, Frank. Great show as always. Listen, this shout-out goes out to Curtis. Curtis, WABC, doesn't stand for Curtis Broadcasting all the time. It stands for Castro Matitis Broadcasting continually. Jimmy in the Bronx. Susan Moron. Eve Frank in Astoria. Yeah, uh, Frank, this is a friend of mine. Uh, he's uh, His name is Damian Thomas, and he wants to say something very important to you. Rocco in Queens. 
15 seconds of semi-fascist infamy. Michael in his bedroom. Yeah, Frank, as usual, you think you know everything, but you don't. He lives, Babe Ruth lives for a time period of 110 Riverside Drive because my friend lives there and his grandfather. Neil on Staten Island. Yeah, Frank, because you're Biden, I'm not going to be able to heat my house with this. you mind if I hop off the car mine? <laughs> you're welcome to it. Frank Morano, good day.